it's kind of pretty interesting how you're uh you're like yeah look so uh you know my life my life was saved that's so cool uh so yeah so good for you i'm very happy i'm very happy that you you know get to spend a few more a uh, few more decades with us that's great you got just well, got your life hey, saved hey, hey, what did i miss what did i miss so no, saved I, Larry? I, I had like uh i had surgery uh for like uh to remove some polyps uh because if you leave polyps in your um uh your colon too long they could turn into cancer and then so yep. After the, the surgery, I find they examined the section of my bowel that they, they removed, and it turned out that I had stage one colon cancer. Oh wow! Yeah, but now I Good don't. Thing they caught it. Pa- That's all. Awesome. Past tense. Yeah, yeah it, had past tense. It, it had flown. It had flown under the radar for like you know, you know for however long I was like getting colonoscopies. So uh, the doctor's like, "Yeah, it's a good thing we went in and took it out when we did, because it turns out you had stage one colon cancer." I'm like. So basically, I found out I I had cancer the same moment I found out I beat cancer. All right, I'll take that win. That's, so that's a good win. how old how old did you start having colonoscopies? Seven last year, like oh, last, a year ago. Like how old are you? They, how old are you? They, I'm I'm 47 now. I was 46 when I had my first first colonoscopy. And uh, the thing was, they uh, at, at the time they didn't recommend it until you turned 50. But I got yeah. mine quickly just because and. Yep. Uh, and it turns out it was a good thing I did because uh, if I'd have waited until I was fifty, I'd have probably been in in horrible shape. So, and then they when they removed that section of my bowel and they, and they like ran tests on it, it's like oh there was like a patch of like stage one colon cancer in there, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't have to worry about it because it's out. I don't have to get you know chemotherapy or anything because you know that the, the surgery you know took care of you know removing it. So basically, all I got to do now is a year from now I got to get. It. Another colonoscopy just to make sure things are uh, okay up there uh, with what I got left. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's it. So that's and, awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's great. I had uh, great. I had them put in one of those little slides, like when you uh, zip a Ziploc bag, so they could just take my colon out every three years and then just run it under a hose, and then they just put it back in. They zip the slide around. It's very convenient. Yes, yeah. it's right around the gerbils too that you have. Up yeah, there. I mean it has to be filtered water, or I find I get a little salt buildup, and that can be kind of a little inconvenient. But otherwise, it's it's fine. Yeah, so, Richard, uh, yeah, Richard so basically, I'm telling everybody if you're in your forties, even if you feel great, you know, get a colonoscopy because mm-hmm. you never know. Because uh, like these diseases, they aren't you know work, working on their old timetables anymore. They're they're yeah, yeah, it's crazy. You should get in touch with Katie Couric. You could go around with her because isn't that what she's doing? Is uh, colon health commercials all over there? Like, go yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. reach out. I, I just read an article on uh, like uh, Yahoo. Taylor Dane, the singer from the like, she oh went yeah, thing. But she's yeah. sixty and she got diagnosed with you know, but she had the same operation I had, and so she's she's fine now. But this, yeah, it's all Weird. good news. All good news. Yep. Completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You are not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Welcome back to Unbalanced Views of History, a mostly American history podcast. I'm your host, Brian. And as always, I'm here with my co-host, a man who would gleefully work as a middle manager for OCP, 
a dude who wears his Building Better Worlds Way You t-shirt after returning home from his time on the spaceship Sulaco. He's also the Grand Nagus of this podcast. It's Mike. Hi, Mike. <laughs> What's up, man? I, I, I forgot I didn't bring my my dictionary or anything. I got to look up all these words. You can call me sometimes, but I appreciate that. That's a great entrance. Sure, sure. It's at, uh, least, at least half true. <laughs> the, uh, Larry, do you know any of those references? Yeah, Grand Nagus is a uh, Ferengi uh, Star Trek uh, Next Generation. Sure. And then uh, uh, OCP is uh, the corporation in RoboCop. Oh, I was hoping and, you'd know that. Yeah, ah, then, that's right. Yeah, and then uh, the Suleiko is uh, one of the ships from uh, Alien. It's the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the Space Marine ship from Aliens. Remember how it's pronounced, but I remembered the corporation was Wayu, which I think is short for something, and that their slogan Wait, was Wayland Yutani. There you go. Thank you. And that their yep. uh, slogan was building better worlds. So, uh, yep. yeah. So, uh, so, you know, I threw that in just for you, Larry, just to see where you were. Very, very well done today. Yeah, you know, no, uh, but yeah, I need to, need to keep my nerd muscles, you know, up to, uh, up to speed. So thank <laughs> yeah, you. Very, very good. Um, today, uh, now that I've already talked to him, we are once again joined by comedian, sometime actor and writer, fellow Baltimore native, all around great guy, big bucket himself. Larry XL. Welcome back, Cheers. Larry. Yep. Um, I did a little deep a little little deep dive to get Big Bucket too. Uh well yep. not that not that deep. Um, hey, you know what? I could I could go for my SAG card if I want to want to get it, my screen actors guild card. Sure. But it's, it's expensive. Oh, yeah. So, it's, yeah. That's a that's um that's a hot item right there. It's like a Twit card. You know, the, the yep. drivers that get those Twit cards, you get your SAG card, man. That's good. That's like gold. Yeah, it's only yeah. worth it if you live in L.A., though. Or yeah. Georgia, apparently. Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, true. Um, well, gentlemen, the ravages of uh, midterm horse race politics are behind us. Now, there isn't much left for any of us to do except gleefully watch as a galaxy-brained super genius brilliantly destroys Twitter with his very smart ideas and wait as the lumbering and desiccated husk of the American empire stumbles towards collapse probably vaporizing the planet in the process. But hey, like I said, Mike, hopefully Trump will land some funny nicknames for DeSantis before the system cannibalizes itself. But before (laughs) our impending annihilation, I'd like to finish our story about the last time widespread disease played a vital role in collapsing imperial power in the United States. It's time for part four of our series, A Pox Upon Your House, Smallpox in the American Revolution. Gentlemen, let's do some history. Let's do it. So to briefly summarize where we left off, uh, George Washington's army emerged from a massive inoculation program and a brutal winter at Valley Forge, complete with uh, bloody footprints and all that stuff. Baron von Steuben hosted a few pantsless parties and drilled some discipline into the American troops. And that's not the only thing he drilled. Oh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> sorry, that was that was so bad. Okay. Intersex hero of the res- of the revolution, Kazmer Pulaski, created an effective American cavalry. But far and away, the most important thing was that France, of course, entered the war, turning it into a global conflict that pulled Brit- British military resources away from the 13 colonies. Now, Washington, as we sort of left, was hell-bent on achieving a decisive victory against the British in New York. That was his goal for the war. He thought if he could just win a decisive victory in New York, perhaps he could win the war. So uh, as we all know, that was when the war ended, was when he won the Battle of New York. 
no, something he never achieved. And the main theater of the war would shift to the South, even though Washington kind of stayed in the North all the way up until like the final battle that really matters. So we too will shift our attention, uh, our attention to warmer climes South of the Mason Dixon, uh, and look at this last fourth part in the sort of second half of the war in the South. So let's start with a little story. Uh, in the fall of 1779, near Savannah, Georgia, David George found himself all alone. He was too sick to move. His family had left him, and a Franco-American force was closing in on his position. He was certain that he would soon be killed, whether by smallpox or by an American bayonet, he did not know. David George was born enslaved in Virginia in 1742, and he wrote about the horrors of plantation life. He saw his mother, quote, on her knees, begging for mercy before beatings, and his sister whipped until her back was all corruption as though it would rot, end quote. His life was full of, quote, rough and cruel usage, uh, end quote, until he ran away. David George ran away and fled south to central Georgia, where he was captured by Blue Salt, a Creek leader who also enslaved him. George wrote, quote, the people were kind, but I still worked hard, end quote. He was living among the Creek when his Virginia owner found him and brought him back. Once back in Virginia, George fled again. This time he went west to a Natchez community led by a guy named King Jack. Now, King Jack brokered a sale between the Virginian and a South Carolina man named George Golfin. Uh, the Virginia, this Virginia slave owner found him again, but King Jack decided he was going to make a little something on this whole deal. Uh, and so he brokers a deal as like a, a neutral third party that makes a cut. Uh, and the deal basically, you know, so basically David George gets sold from this Virginian to George Galvin. Now, for the next three years, David George lived about 400 miles away from Galvin's Silver Bluff home, Silver Bluff, South Carolina home. And George worked in the deerskin trade. Once a year, uh, George traveled to Silver Bluff and delivered the money he had made over the course of the year. But after the third year, he asked Galvin if he could stay in Silver Bluff and Galvin said yes. Once there, George got married. He had a kid about four years later. Then after his child's birth, George had a deep spiritual conversion. By the time shots were fired at Lexington Concord in 1775, David George had become a preacher. And his Silver Bluff congregation was the very first black Baptist church in America. As we saw from uh, Lord Dunmore's proclamation in Virginia at the beginning of the war, Enslaved Americans paid very close attention to the revolution itself. They looked for any opportunity to improve their material conditions, right? So when the British took Savannah in December of 1778, many patriots, including David George's owner, George Galfin, um, they fled. David George wrote, quote, being afraid, Galfin retired from home and left the slaves behind, end quote. So coward. David George, his family, and more than 50 other slaves, as soon as Galfin was gone, or Galfin was gone, they fled to British lines as the Americans tried to reclaim the city of Savannah. The George family hid in a Savannah stable until it was shattered by American cannonballs, and then they sheltered under the floorboards of a house right nearby, near the stable. When the siege finally ended, they moved a mile outside of Savannah, and almost a year later, in October of 1779, David George caught smallpox. Yeah, I mean, boring life this guy has. Mm -hmm. Around the same time, what I think might be the most interesting patriot force uh, of the entire war 
all combined to try and retake Savannah. So I'm going to run through some of the people that were involved because it's, it's a wild sort of hodgepodge of people. Benjamin Lincoln was the commander of the um, American army that, that would attack Savannah. Uh, so he was the, you know, sort of the head. Uh, but it was a, an American army or American forces that featured the Polish Kazmir Pulaski and his closest friend, the Hungarian, Michael Kovac Stefabrizzi, the two men who spoke no English but were responsible for the entire American cavalry. At the head of, they were at the head of what was called Pulaski's Legion. Now, both men were killed during the, the siege of Savannah. Pulaski was killed by a uh, grape shot in the groin, uh, which is a horrific way to die. Do you guys know what grape yeah, shot right. is? Yeah. Yeah. Mike, did you say yeah? Uh, what, for what? Would you ask? What, what grape shot is? Grape shot. Yeah. No, I'm guessing it's, never uh, heard it's like, a, like ball bearings, right? Like, like high, a musket high... ball? Yeah, so, it, Larry's pretty much right. It's it's kind of like uh, small musket balls, but they're they're clustered together. They're sort of tied together, wired together, Ooh. so they look like a cluster of grapes. Now Ooh. you you use these so, so a like lot of times. It's, it's 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 like a primitive shotgun shell. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly Buck right. Shot. They were yeah. uh, they were most famously used on ships because they would you could fire them and they would just like sort of. Uh, you basically could take a sh- sink a ship using grape shot uh, in a way you couldn't with just straight cannon. Well, you could, but like the grape shot would sort of tear up the deck. It would tear up the hull because you have like, you know, every cannon would have every cannon fire would have like 12 small balls that would just, you know, riddle the side of a ship. Anyway, um, you know, if you wanted to take down the mast, you would use things like chain shot or whatever, where you had like two cannonballs attached by chain they'd wrap around. Anyway, so you get shot in the groin. With grape shot. So the reason I bring that up is because the grape shot, because by this point, uh, Pulaski was was a hero. I mean, he, he was a, a hero of the revolution, regardless of how it turned. Well, for the Americans, if they win. And the grape shot was removed from his groin and preserved. In fact, you can go to the Georgia Historical Society in Savannah, Georgia, and you can see the grape shot that was removed uh, on display. But also... The grape shot that killed him was also removed from his groin, and you could see it at the Charleston Museum on display. So I, I don't know. One of those two probably shot him in the nuts. I'm not sure which one. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I love that both cities, both sort of um, jewels of the deep uh, revolutionary South, both claim to like possess the grape shot that killed Casimir Pulaski, which is I don't know. I find kind of funny. Like, no, no, no. We, like, we uh, have if, I, if I go to Savannah, I'm just going to go see, get, find the best place to get shrimp and grits. I'm not really going to go look for <laughs> grape shot. The, that, the, 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 yeah. The, the steel ball that ripped somebody's groin. Like, yeah. Or, right. Yeah. Just... In both cases, uh, the grape shot is uh, still covered in like, um, in like the, the dried viscera that, uh, you know, that remains on it. So, it's I mean, obviously juice. most of it's gone. Most of it. Well, so what you, what you're saying is we can get his DNA and clone him like Jurassic Park. You, well, sure. You could also probably test to figure out since they've tested his bones, you could probably test to figure out which one is accurate, but neither place really wants to do that. Cause right. uh, they're, they're both perfectly content to be like, no, no, we have the real one, but let's not, let's not find out. Right. Which right. Is great. Okay. Anyway, Pulaski and Kovats, um, combined with Continental Forces, led by the Scottish-born general, Lachlan McIntosh, who, in 1777, shot and killed a man named Button Gwinnett, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Now, he shot and killed him in a duel. Gwinnett County, Georgia, is named after Button Gwinnett. And yes, his name was Button, which is just fantastic. Button it up, baby. 
So, so you got a uh, Scottish guy that killed uh, one of the Declaration signers, um, no less a guy named Button. The Americans, uh, I'm going to put that in loose quotes, these American troops combined with French troops who made up the left column of the army and were ca- commanded by the Swedish Count Kurt von Stedding. <coughs> Whatever. So you got a Swedish commander of the French troops, right? Uh, here over on the left column. And finally, the joint operation was led by Charles Hector Comte d'Estaing, a, let's just say, a cautious French general and uh, an admiral who tried to get George Washington to combine forces with him in the South for this attack, a plan that would have likely been successful and probably ended the war, uh, like which was basically the same plan that they executed at Yorktown. However, Washington was so hell-bent on getting a victory at New York, he refused. And, uh, you know, the war dragged on a few more years, but, you know, mostly poor people died, so I guess it's fine. Under Destank's command was a group of more than 500 black Haitians. uh, And I'm clarifying because Haiti was still um, Saint-Domingue. It was not Haiti yet, but uh, black Haitians. To to denote, we're talking about it was a combination of um, both gens de color, which was uh, the free men of color, and enslaved Haitians. Um, they were called the Chasseur Volontaire uh, Regiment. The enslaved Haitians that were, were that were serving would earn their freedom through their service in the war. So again, it's like this such a wild, uh, I think, force that the Americans put together of like just all these people that have like on some level have no dog in the fight. Among the, other than themselves, obviously. Anyway, among the Haitian volunteers was a 12-year-old drummer named Henri Christophe who would later be a key leader in the Haitian Revolution. And he would actually declare himself King of Haiti, which, okay, good for you. Nice. Dude. Like, I love, lo- yeah, like, why not? I-, I wish I could declare myself King of things. That would be great. And King of High Springs. Anyway, finally, Pierre L'Enfant, who was the guy who designed Washington, D.C. and is buried in Arlington National Cemetery, was wounded in the Siege of Savannah as part of this military operation. Because of his wound, he was unable to see action for the remainder of the war. And I always wonder about guys like this, where it's like, yeah, d- you were unable to see action. Was that because you were like, ow, getting shot really, really hurts, and I'm very rich. So <laughs> I just, I just, oof, oof, it's, it's raining, the hip, the hip, you know, or whatever. So anyway, it was this. I did not harsh- go out in the rain. Yeah, exactly. You have the worst French accent I've ever heard, by the way. Was that French? I, I don't know. He, he's French, French so I assumed. I did not go out during the rain. That's more German, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I, 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 Bee wee. Bee wee. I got to add last, a wee in there. The last time you tried to do a fake French accent, I was like, is is he doing like a really racist Chinese? I can't tell <laughs> what he's doing. It's not French. Which I still seems... do accidentally in Chinese restaurants. I have to stop doing that. Uh, so we've we've run to our first thing that we're cutting out. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So anyway, it was this hodgepodge of people that David George heard as he awaited certain death, but he didn't die. He survived on like a couple handfuls of rice and some Indian corn, which I mean, I, I, I just, you you have to be so desperate to eat Indian corn. Like, I mean, it's just it's like, I mean, you know, it has to be ground up and made. Into, well, I mean, uh, I mean, come on. it wasn't like, you know there was like a Chick-fil-A or a Chipotle around the corner. I mean, that was pretty much what you had. Sure. But also people didn't like brush their teeth. So generally by the time you're like 25, you're like your whole mouth, your whole head hurts all the time. So, I mean, I think about trying to like crunch on, on, on like, you know, on Indian corn and like, yeah, just, uh, anyway, 
You'd have to be desperate. This in, I'm going to look for this Indian corn in the ethical next time I'm at the grocery store. Yeah, well, it'd, be, it'd be another it'd be another what, like 100 years before Mexican street corn would uh, make its debut. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Indian corn is. Uh, yeah. Anyway, whatever. Um, you got to grind it up is all I'm saying. Anyway, the Americans were defeated after about a month-long siege, and they retreated to Charleston, where a few months later, Benjamin Lincoln surrendered his entire army in what was, I I mean, almost unquestionably the worst defeat of the war. David George and his family moved to Charleston until the end of the war. Uh, The British defeat left black loyalists. When the British eventually lose the war, this would leave black loyalists in a really precarious position. They could stay in the new United States and face the wrath of their former owners for running away, right? Or the British offered a couple of not really great options, right? The British relocated several thousand to the Bahamas, uh, which was a slave colony where Lord Dunmore, who used to be the governor of Virginia, was now the governor of the Bahamas. And some others were sent elsewhere in the empire, but the largest portion, about 3,000 or so formerly enslaved folks, David George and his family among them, were sent to the colony of New Scotland, or as we know it, Nova Scotia. For 10 years, George lived and preached in Nova Scotia as his family grew larger, and he preached to biracial congregants and even baptized white folks. Um, He claimed, quote, we had a little heaven together, end quote. Unfortunately for him, uh, some white members of the community disagreed, whether they were jealous of his success or angry about interracial congregations or both, or just angry white people, a white mob destroyed his home and destroyed the homes of a number of parishioners at his church. And this was part of a large, uh, this part of a larger pattern of violence and abuse faced by the black migrants who went to Nova Scotia, who frequently made written complaint to the British government about vigilante violence perpetrated against them. After 10 years, the British decided that it was so bad that rather than do anything to fix the problem, they were going to found a new colony on the west coast of Africa, which I, I love that, that everything that I find writes it like this, like, well, we've just decided to found a new colony. I'm like, when you say found a new colony, you know that people live there, right? Like, it's not, it's not, you don't, it's the old Eddie Izzard skit, like, mm-hmm. but do you have a flag? Um, well, no, but we've lived here for as long as, yeah, anyway. So they found a new colony on the west coast of Africa for black loyalists, and they hoped that these black loyalists would then help them to subjugate the people that live there. So they hoped that they would have these newly subjugated people sort of living side by side uh, with the black loyalists under white British rule. In 1792, David George accepted an offer and went with his wife, his six children, and like 1,200 of the black loyalists from Nova Scotia, and they went to found Sierra Leone. That is the origin of the country, Sierra Leone. I love it. Relation. <laughs> relations, I got my last ring. I got my last ring there. From Sierra Leone? Mm-hmm. All right. Conflict diamonds. Lovely. Yes. I think that's where I got the, uh, the diamond from. It was beautiful. Relations between black colonists and white governors did not uh, improve very much in these new environs. And by 1800, just eight years later, black loyalists and Sierra Leonean natives revolted over the Sierra Leone company's monopoly control over land, seeds, tools, all the stuff that you need to live under this new uh, British uh, colony. 
The revolt was eventually suppressed by a group of, and this is again, the story just gets, this is just, this whole thing is so wild. The, the revolt is eventually put down by a group of 550 Jamaican Maroons. Uh, now Jamaican Maroons are something I know quite a bit about. This was uh, what I, I, um, I did most of my research on in grad school. The, these 550 Jamaican Maroons, these are runaway slaves who formed autonomous communities and fought the British in 17, in the 1730s and early 40s. And they defeated them in Jamaica and actually managed to carve out their own, um, autonomous communities as a result of, of treaty concessions in Jamaica. Uh, but then a second, uh, second war broke out, uh, towards the, like at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century. And as part of the concession, a bunch of lured uh, Maroons had to uh, basically serve as a, a military force for the British. They sent them to Sierra Leone as a kind of, uh, hey, look, you know, you you could keep on fighting and it's bad for both of us or we'll move you over there and we'll leave you alone as long as you serve as our kind of military. So that's kind of the deal they struck. Anyway, uh, Maroons continue to remain in Jamaica and they have a, a, a complicated negotiating these terms. Good Lord. Uh, the uh, Maroons negotiating with like the British governors. Like, like it's all uh, right. Yeah. Um, and the Maroons are now called the Rastafarians. No, that that's a whole different, that's a whole different thing. That's a whole different gotcha. thing. Um, <clears throat> whole different thing. Actually, no, I, I, do, I gave a paper, um, in a Maroon community at Charlestown at the, uh, a sofa yard in, uh, in, Charlestown, Jamaica, which is a maroon community, a community of windward maroons uh, that are still the descendants of the victors of the 1738 war. 17, I'm sorry, 1742 treaty, the 1730s war um, that that continue to live there to this day. But they have a long, complicated history because they um, ultimately had to agree to like serve as slave catchers for runaway slaves from the plantations. But then there's a little bit of a mixed history where they didn't always return everybody. Sometimes they let people stay and live among them. And it's a whole it's a whole thing. It's very controversial in, in Jamaica. Like there's a, a real mixed kind of history because while they're they're seen as sort of freedom fighters who fight for run away, fight for and, and gain their freedom. They also then like don't have any sort of um, uh, any kind of like, I don't know, uh, black solidarity or, or anything like that um in the in the end but also it's a self-preservation thing so there's a kind of under i don't know it's a whole complicated thing maybe one day we'll talk about nanny or queen nanny or something like that but anyway anyway these 550 jamaican maroons from the second maroon war resettle in sierra leone that year anyway among all of the rebels was a guy named harry washington who had run away from mount vernon and was now living in sierra leone so one of george washington's uh former enslaved uh folks was part of this revolution against, or this revolt against the British. Anyway, we don't know David George's role in the re- in the rebellion. We have no idea, but we know that he died in Sierra Leone around 1810. And I think I said, but the maroon, I mean, the the revolt was suppressed. Um, again, you bring in these battle hardened maroons who had just been fighting against the British Empire in Jamaica, who were highly skilled in in uh, asymmetrical warfare, highly skilled in in like guerrilla tactics. And all that stuff, and they were able to pretty quickly put down the the hodgepodge of people who were just mad um, about uh, about the the conditions. Anyway, anyway, David George's story illustrates the world in which he lived. It's a, a shrinking world where human ties, communications, commerce, politics, warfare, all this stuff they it crossed oceans, and borders were you know malleable. You could cross borders pretty easily. The stories of David George, Pulaski, Kovats, and Henri Christophe all revealed that the war was transforming from a spat among uh, like factions of Britons 
to a global international affair, and the impacts were felt by people worldwide. Anglo-French naval battles occurred in the Mediterranean. The British seized the French port of Mahi on the west coast of the Indian subcontinent. In part, they did this by first allying themselves and then destroying a matriarchy of Nair, the region, who ruled the area. Now, um, this this matriarchy of Nair uh, practiced polyandry. So, you know, polyandry is like uh, taking multiple husbands. Like, so they would, you know, you would sort of, not even husbands, you would just have sort of multiple male lovers. It's the same as uh, p- polygyny, uh, except, you know, the other way, but except for, you know, so it was women yep. in charge, women ran the whole town. And, um, and they, you know, the, the, the ruling elites, uh, took multiple male lovers, the British allied with them in order to sort of defeat the French there. Uh, but as soon as they had defeated the French, then they turned on them and, uh, commenting on the matriarchy of Nair, the British, uh, they didn't really have a, I don't have a direct quote, but I'll paraphrase. They basically said, we think it's icky for women to enjoy sex. So you all have to die. Or resign yourself to like an orgasm-free life of service to men. So that's pretty much what we're leaving you with. Um, you know, the the choice. Well, it's not even the choice isn't even yours. We don't we don't <laughs> approve. We don't approve. Uh, and so that was that's how that went. Um, thanks for your help, but we don't approve. So we have to destroy you now. In Hyder Ali's uh, Mysore Kingdom, who we talked about last time, the battles for India helped bring the Dutch into the war. So the Dutch enter the war on the side of the French and the Americans. And then the Spanish had signed a secret agreement with France, and they entered the war with the hope that they would reclaim Gibraltar, Florida, and Menorcas from Britain. But the crown jewels of British Empire were still in North America, and that was the Sugar Islands. Excuse me. Nothing was more valuable for the uh, European colonizers than the Sugar Islands. And for the British, this meant Barbados and Jamaica. The, the latter of which produced more wealth than all 13 colonies combined, the 13 rebellious colonies combined. So Jamaica was more valuable than all the colonies, like combined. <laughs> so, so the British sent their troops to Jamaica. Yes. Uh, yes. It's actually part of, it's part of the story of how the Maroons lose the second Maroon war because there's uh, the British kind of leave some of their, so- like more soldiers there than they normally kept. Anyway. So due in part to war fatigue, uh, as landed citizen soldiers became disillusioned with military service, continental ranks were increasingly filled with jobless, landless immigrants. The Army's ranks were also getting poorer as wealthy people increasingly hired replacements to serve in their stead. When I say wealthy, I'm not talking about elites. I'm talking well, sometimes, but I'm mostly talking about like um, the merchant class would pay replacements to, to, to serve for them. Wealthier folks... Uh, wanted nothing to do with the war. Like the merchant class want nothing to do with the war unless they were wealthy enough to sort of get the kind of command that would keep them safely away from harm and also get a, uh, you know, a, a good title, right? Like a, a good officership that could get, make them a lot of money. So generally speaking, wealthy folks don't want to fight. So the army though, however, was, was also at the same time getting inoculated uh, at a pretty good clip and the higher percentage of foreign born soldiers meant that fewer soldiers needed to get inoculated right because most of these foreign soldiers from europe were had already been exposed as children you know that was the the whole thing so so finally the american fighting force uh by sort of 1779 or so was on even footing with the british as far as the virus was concerned but remember 
for fall, for uh, smallpox to spread, it didn't need soldiers. It just needed human connections. And the Quebec ex- exhibition sort of is, is revealing here because it shows that, that uh, smallpox thrived in chaos. And so many people are saying the Southern campaign bigly offered both chaos and connections. There you go. That's a little, that's a little Trump for you, Mike. Many people are saying <laughs> in honor of his historic reannouncement. Historic. Yeah. Historians just the only the president. It's pretty historic. The only president to win three elections. That's, that's going to be pretty historic. You got to give it. I mean, uh, you, you've heard of, you've heard of FDR, right? I mean, you've, you've heard of FDR. I haven't. That was before my time. Yeah. Okay. So, cause he won four, one, he won four. Um, just in case you, yeah, the, F, the F, FDR, he's, he's the two of them didn't count. I don't think <laughs> they, uh, Republicans were so mad after FDR died that they, they uh, brought that it they, back to life. No, they pushed through a constitutional amendment to make it the whole, like you can only serve two terms or 10 years. Um, and, uh, and then like the two presidents that have actually been impacted by that are, uh, Eisenhower. And maybe Reagan, although Reagan's Reagan's brain was such mush by 1988, it's hard to imagine him running again. But they were the yeah, two guys that sort of had the popularity. They might have they might have been able to win a third term. But anyway, um, even though they were both garbage. Anyway, historians describe the war, the, the Revolutionary War in the South as uh, partisan warfare. So this means it was a kind of um, like a civil war uh, besides trying to. Uh, there was, you know, basically both sides trying to not just defeat each other, but also like win the support of the local population. That's kind of how you define, you know, like partisan warfare um, is a civil war where you're trying to actually like, as as Americans like to say, win hearts and minds at the same time, which was, you know, is not like a, always a common thing. Anyway, this um, this this because of this this situation, this meant like a kind of reliance on. Uh, irregular military forces, that is, militias and temporary volunteers for the Americans, um, militias and temporary volunteers for the Americans, and loyalists and powerful indigenous groups for the British, right? The thing about irregulars was that they are irregular. Like, they're really vulnerable to smallpox, but also not always great soldiers. I mean, like, not always, like, super disciplined. They're not always great about following orders, uh, especially orders that don't seem to make much sense to them. Anyway, from the 1730s to the 70s, there were only two smallpox epidemics in the Southeast in 1738 and 9 and 1759 and 60. So by the time the revolution moved south, a whole generation had passed uh, in the south So that, that since anybody had been exposed. And like, so that was basically everyone who might have been in fighting age or at fighting age had now like aged out of military service. So you have this whole like the, like the whole population is essentially vulnerable to infection. In June of 1778, British prisoners of war arrived in American-held city of Charleston. Um, Colonel Francis Marion, a guy later known as the Swamp Fox, called for 14 men to guard prisoners, and he ordered the guards to be chosen from people who had the smallpox, and uh, this kind of suggests maybe the POWs were infected. Ten months later, in April of 1779, there was a similar call for guards. The the sergeant and party, uh, they called for who, anybody who had had smallpox to serve again to be guards. So again, mostly, you know, this is guarding loyalists, um, who may have been infected. And in the second case, especially this was mostly, most likely to guard loyalists that Benjamin Lincoln's army had, um, his operations in the Carolina backcountry, uh, had captured. He 
went on like a vicious crusade to sort of crush any bro British uh, pro British sentiments in the Carolina backcountry. So not exactly winning hearts and minds, you know, like when you're kicking indoors and like, do you like the British? You're under arrest, you know, and then like taking to a smallpox infested prison uh, to be guarded by the military. So anyway, Lincoln, not a great general. Anyway, um, but these these strategies of high of making sure to like get volunteers to guard from people who had been exposed worked right. The smallpox epidemic uh, that was sort of caused by these POWs uh, was generally contained to the Charleston area throughout 1779 or the summer of 1779. But other towns weren't so fortunate. So in April 1779, the coastal North Carolina town of New Bern, which is where Tryon's palace was completed in 1770 um and you can still go to Tryon's palace you should go if you ever get through new Bern. it's really wild um it was completed at a cost of today in today's money it cost 3.5 million dollars to build and um this was the governor of north carolina and he pissed off everybody because he's like i don't like the governor's mansion it's not good enough for me i'm gonna build this huge (laughs) palace again in 1770 and by like 1776, it was in disrepair and like torn down. You know, it was torn down by like the you know by the end of the war. Uh, well, not torn down. It was it was in disrepair um, and was not really well built. Built in 1959, um, some people got the wide idea to wild idea to make it a tourist attraction, and they decided to renovate it because it was still there. And it cost like the same 3.5 million dollars to renovate it, which I think is hilarious. That are like you know 200 years later, it cost the same amount of money to like basically build this thing. Um, <laughs> Anyway, to renovate this thing. So, okay. Anyway, in New Bern, smallpox raged, uh, forcing the, the General Assembly in North Carolina to relocate and New Bern to relocate. A few weeks later, smallpox ravaged a Moravian community in Salem, North Carolina. The virus, though, didn't spread from New Bern, but it was brought by soldiers. On April 26, um, again, 1779, Pulaski's Legion uh, arrived unexpectedly in the prosperous Moravian village. Pulaski's stay among these pacifists actually proved really deadly. Quote, they had with them, this is talking about the soldiers, the, the Moravians took notes about everything. The Moravians wrote, quote, they had with them one man who was sick with smallpox, and this brought the infection into our town. Pulaski's men generally left a positive impression with, I'm sorry, end quote. Pulaski's men generally left a positive impression with Moravians noting that, quote, most of them came every day to preaching, end quote. The Legion stayed for four days in Salem, uh, so they left on April 30th. But on May 13th, just two weeks later, the Moravians wrote down that their slave, quote, Jacob, shows signs of smallpox. And we suspect the same with Eva Schumacher, who is currently helping in the tavern at present, end quote. So, like, good decision. The the woman who's like, well, she seems to be infected with smallpox, but she's helping out at the tavern. That should be fine. Um, you know the the place where everyone comes to sleep when they visit that's it should be should be okay now uh this is a little bit of a side note but i think it's it's just interesting uh jacob the enslaved guy that the moravians had there had developed a reputation for shrewd financial dealings he was one of the first enslaved people that were ever purchased by these uh german moravians and he very quickly amassed a small personal fortune behind the backs of his owners. Now he got caught a few times. So that kind of ended up becoming a problem, but like he was really good at business for them, made them a lot of money, but he made a lot of money on his, on the side. He was um, a kind of cultural broker. He like kind of operated as a, like a go between for the German speaking Moravians who some of them spoke some English, but most of them spoke all German. 
Um, and he was a go-between between them and their typically English-speaking guests, right? So he was kind of the translator between these, these groups. Um, and his relationship with the Moravians seems to have been kind of uh, antagonistic, which is shocking for an enslaved person to have an antagonistic relationship with the person who claims to own them. Uh, anyway, he... Um, well, yeah, usually... I'll be damned if I'm going to like translate properly for you if I'm, if I'm enslaved. I'm going to make you look like an asshole to your friends. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Sh- shocking stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he seemed to have had a sp- uh, particularly uh, antagonistic relationship um, with this one guy, John Wallace, who once complained about him, quote, he has been bought by the mercy of the collegium, but he shows no thankfulness. On the contrary, he is as mean and insolent as can be, end quote. <laughs> so I love this guy who's like, I don't understand why this person who I hold it, who we hold collectively in bondage is mad. We <laughs> bought him he, and he shows no gratitude that we bought him. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, like I don't understand this guy. He's mean, even though we like pretend that he is property. I, he I should be grateful. He should be grateful for the we for treat the him, beatings we give him, but the roof we put him over the head. We treat him it's no different crazy. than our. It's than really, our, their attitude though. We treat him no different than our livestock. Why doesn't he thank us? <laughs> right, right. Now, I mean, that said, um, I mean, if you're, if you're, I mean, I've, I've had said this before. This is dangerous territory to do uh to qualify human rights violations as like one being worse than than another or whatever but as these things go uh you could if you if you had to be enslaved in colonial america you could do worse than being enslaved to moravians um they were as a general rule guided by some semblance of christian kindness morals or something kind of i mean they still sucked um, but mm. they did they but they were less in, less likely to suck as bad as uh, some other people that's for sure but i mean again you know we're 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 compare we're saying like well who would you rather have the person who builds 10 concentration camps or nine well right i mean i guess the nine but uh they both are horrible anyway so anyway with all this said is that jacob was probably in more frequent contact with people than the rest of the moravians were because he's like the go-between he's like the guy that's sending the messages back and forth so even uh, even if he wasn't grateful for his enslavement he's the guy with the most mobility so it's impo- it's really quite possible that he was infected through his like side hustle dealings because part of his go-between stuff was he would set up little side hustles for himself and uh and good for him now, mm-hmm. Eva Schumacher's case is more clear. As a tavern employee, she would have been in contact with nearly all of the men at some point during their four-day stay. She died on May 20th, 1779, at 10 p.m., according to the records. Uh, now, Jacob survived and spent most of 1779 engaged in, quote, a frontal assault on Moravian authority, end quote, mm-hmm. resulting in mm-hmm. numerous whippings and then his running away, only to be caught and then sold away. In 1780, the brethren, uh, the Moravian brethren, received word that Jacob had run away from his new owner, uh, and you know maybe he fled towards the British lines and promise of freedom there, as he was sold closer to where they were. <clears throat> I hope that that's true. Um, although that didn't necessarily end well. Maybe he was in Nova Scotia. Who knows? Eventually. Anyway, smallpox festered and spread through Salem, and the brethren considered inoculations, but quote. 
Our ignorant and malicious neighbors threaten to destroy the town if we inoculated. So the smallpox stayed among us until October, end quote. I also love this, that the Moravians are like, well, we would like to inoculate our citizens against this disease, but our neighbors, who are monsters, refuse to allow it. Like, they will kill us if we inoculate. So I guess we'll all have to just die of smallpox instead. Um, I mean, it's just so funny. Like, the there's a kind of, there's a, a weird politeness to it. Our ignorant uh-huh. and malicious neighbors threaten to destroy the town. <laughs> like, but I guess that's what we have to do. Anyway, um, travelers through Salem were afraid and took, like, interesting measures to avoid infection. So, I th- again, I thought this was just interesting. Quote, it was customary for such people to have a leaf of tobacco, which they smelled as a preventative, you know, from smallpox. Some stuck tobacco leaves in their nostrils. One even saw some passerby who had smeared tar on his forehead under the nose and elsewhere, end quote. Um, so, yeah, people were like, oh, Salem's infected. So I'm going to stick tobacco leaves in my nose and <laughs> smear tar on my face. That should, well, that should. That's a good way to get people to keep their distance from you. So, <laughs> very true. To say though, I was really disappointed that, like, in that story, nobody was like they smeared tar on their forehead, under the nose, and their heels for some reason, so they could make some sense of tar heels uh, for the first time in my life. I mean, there you go. Uh, I was wondering where that came from. It it, it comes from the from the pine trees that they because North Carolina was basically um, as a colony was for like lumber and turpentine. Uh, turpentine being really important for uh, as a naval store, like to seal the ships and stuff. And so in order to get turpentine, you have to tap these pine trees the same way you would like, uh, you know, like you would with, uh, um, with a maple tree for syrup, you tap them yep, and you, dri- yep. and you drip, you drip the sap. And so, you know, just the ground is constantly covered in pine sap and, and turpentine yep. production is just like horrific work. I mean, it's just awful. that. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, enslaved folks that were involved in like turpentine production, like there's a huge incidence of like uh, of tool. I'm gonna, I don't want to say armed, but like tooled rebellions where they're just like, this is awful. I'd rather die. And so they use their tools to like rise up and, and flee to free, you know, try to flee to freedom anyway. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's why I mean, it's just from walking around barefoot in the in the pine needles. So uh, anyway. Okay. Um, anyway, among the children, however, the smallpox could be envied because survivors were allowed the freedom to play. So I, this one little Moravian girl, quote, little Betsy Bag often wept because she was the only little girl who did not have the smallpox, end quote. So she would sit around feeling sorry for herself crying because all her friends had smallpox and could go play and she couldn't. <clears throat> she did eventually catch the, uh, catch the virus. Good for her. And she survived. So lucky Betsy bag. Uh, anyway, but I love this idea that like kids are like, no fair. Like, all the, everybody else has smallpox. I don't, I don't get smallpox. Yeah. yeah do you realize how, how badly the, the toys of that era sucked? She wasn't really missing much. I mean, they, all they had was like, like ball and a ball and a cup on a stick or something like, yep. Yeah. You had a cup. A yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, rich kids. That's uh that uh Monty Python skit, the um Yeah. Yeah. Or, or is it yeah, it's Monty Python, isn't it? Or is it uh yeah, you had a cup, wanna buy in my day, you know. Anyway, sorry. Uh okay. I wish if I knew the if I knew the bit, I'd do more of it, but I don't. Pulaski's Legion 
continued south after they kind of stayed there in Salem and uh, spread their disease around. And they probably carried smallpox with them. So now, um, you know, Pulaski's men, I don't know how to exactly say this, but they, they operated in a kind of uh, like a liminal space between the Continental Army, like the sort of regulars of the army, and an independent band. Like they weren't really an independent band, but they also weren't really under the, con- the command structure of the Continental Army. So again, mm-hmm. they kind of operate in this like a liminal in-between space. Pulaski is nominally the leader, but there's a kind of popular consent to the whole thing. So anyway, as a result of this, uh, the fact that they kind of are like semi-independent and the fact they were organized after most of the inoculations were done at Valley Forge, um, they somehow kind of managed to avoid being inoculated as as part of that mass inoculation campaign. So uh, when they arrived in Charleston, uh, after they helped turn back a British attempt to take the city, um, they were extremely sick. And in fact, like the muster rolls are a bit vague here, um, as they are a lot of times, but in this case especially, because the muster rolls only listed whether, how many effective and non-effective men were there uh, in in Charleston. So they don't really do like subcategories of who was sick and who was wounded like a lot of other places do. So anyway, for whatever it's worth, though, uh, just a staggering 40% of Pulaski's men were listed as, quote, non-effective, compared to, like, 22% for the entire rest of the Southern Army. So uh, we also, of course, know how the story ends for Pulaski after this point. But uh, Pulaski's legions were not the only, like, smallpox vector in the South. In the fall of 1778, a combined force of German Waldeckers, who were mercenaries from Waldeck, um, and then Maryland loyalists sailed from New York on their way to reinforce Pensacola, Florida, which was still a British colony. The Waldeckers were mostly immune uh, to smallpox coming over from Germany, but the Marylanders were most definitely not immune. The ships stopped to resupply and repair in Jamaica, and the men were fascinated by the island, not surprisingly. Um, they were like absolutely in love. Uh, General John Campbell wrote that the island was, quote, a surprise to their eyes, a paradise on earth, which yeah, they went, they went from ocean city to Jamaica. I bet you they were, (laughs) well, they went from New York. It was even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying something, Larry. No, Uh, no. Like uh, I'm, I'm generally, I was generally shocked at like, you know, how much people like North of Maryland, like love their beaches. Cause like, I'm like, have you ever been to Florida? The beaches there are way better. (laughs) The, the first time together, but like, like <laughs> it's almost like that that uh, that Jersey Shore episode of uh, um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. That's what like you know, that's literally what every beach, like you know, north of uh, Maryland, even probably even in Maryland, too, was like. Yep. Yeah, but they don't know any better. It's just yeah. tradition. They just been yeah. doing it since they were a kid. So yeah, that's what I do every year. I still go to Ocean City, but damn, it's a shithole. It's uh, it's funny you mention uh, it's always sunny because General John Campbell said his favorite thing about Jamaica was rum ham. Anyway, yes. <laughs> sorry, he's, he says it was a surprise to their eyes, a paradise on earth, which which was that much more beautiful after the long and hazardous sea voyage, and also we had a rum ham. No, plus uh, they kept they kept getting into arguments in Jamaica about Old Bay and and jerk seasoning, so they were probably fascinated with that. That's, sure. that's all they had with them is, I think, Old Bay, right? Uh, yeah, probably. That was, that was probably it. They they argued. Uh, they're like, uh, you know, jerk seasoning uh, 
uh, Juk uh, comes from uh, the the Maroons. Actually, were the ones who did that. It's a style of cooking, an open pit cooking, uh, and then the seasonings sort of come sort of after the fact. And it's where the word barbecue comes from, um, barbacoa, <clears throat> uh, because it has it comes from the the name of the 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 uh, the open fire pit that they use to cook, which is called a boucanier, which uh, is where the word buccaneer comes from, because mm. the buccaneers saw these runaway slaves cooking on the uh, on the shores, who probably learned it from the Taino, but um, these on these boucaniers. And so the boucanier, the bucan, these these pirates were like, oh, that's a good idea. And so they start doing it. So they become associated with the boucanier, and that's where you get buccaneer. It's where you, and from buccaneer you end up with barbacoa because it's a mistranslation, and barbacoa becomes barbecue. And um, so jerk seasoning, jerk, 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 jerk is from jerk. Jerk is a mistranslation of the word chook, which is chicken. Uh, so you've got chook on the bar- on the uh, boucanier, and that's where you get jerk and you get barbecue, all from the same cooking things over a fire hmm. on the beach, you know, or whatever. Anyway, so that's what there'll be. That's, a, there'll be a that's, test later. That's, that's an excerpt from your new book, Smallpox Recipes. Mm. <laughs> Re- recipes to get over the pox. Yeah, um, yeah that's that's what uh, that's what uh, like. Like um, a month of research in Jamaica taught me was uh, how boucanier and boucanier and barbecue are all the same thing. Anyway, worth it. Okay. Love it. Um, but anyway, so, okay. So the men um, also found out why Jamaica was known among the British as, quote, the Reaper's Garden, end quote. The first case of smallpox broke out as Jamaica faded below the horizon behind them as they sailed off. And by the time they arrived in Pensacola, the Waldeckers were able to disembark and muster on January 30th, excuse me, January 30th, 1779. But the Marylanders were so sick that they didn't muster until 23 days later on February 22nd. The mortality rates among the Marylanders were astonishing. Like of the 32 privates that were under Captain Isaac Coston, 17 died. So 17 out of 32 died. And those who were under Captain Caleb Jones's command, there were 39. 13 of them died and the epidemic was far from over. So that was just like when they mustered, when they finally were able to disembark, when they had the strength to disembark and muster like a third of one guy's had died and and more than half of another's had died. It's just crazy. Anyway, the Creek nation shift gears a little bit. The Creek nation resided in present day, Georgia sort of Alabama borderlands region. And they regularly went to Pensacola to trade. So, the Revolutionary War made this trade much more important for the Creek because the ports, like the nearby port cities like Savannah and Charleston, were basically under American control. And so, like, they had become like accustomed to trading for certain goods. And so, in order to keep trading with the British, they had to go to Pensacola. It was like the only kind of nearby uh, sort of option. And so, um, what made this even more urgent was that the uh, the Creek had suffered through a pretty severe famine in 1777 and 78. So like by 79 and 80, they were like really dependent on Pensacola uh, because they had been so, so weakened anyway. So according to the, the British, uh, the British Indian agent, uh, a guy named David Tate, uh, quote, great numbers of Cherokee and Creek came to Pensacola during the winter and spring of 79 and 80. Anyway, end quote, according to the Pennsylvania Gazette by 1779, September of 1779, Smallpox, quote, 
raged most violently among the Creek Indians, end quote. Americans at this point had lost Savannah, uh, they'd lost Augusta, and they'd lost the rest of Georgia pretty much. And then even Charleston had fallen to the British. So the pestilence among their enemies was kind of a consolation for for the uh, American cause. On October 15th, a British Indian agent, a guy named Alexander Cameron, updated the general Augustine Prevost on the situation among the Creek. Quote, the smallpox has reduced them much and... Sorry, the smallpox has reduced them much, and those towns who have not had it yet have fled with their families into the woods. Furthermore, those who survived the pox seem to be tired of the war and would rather hunt the bear than the rebels, end quote. Um, Cameron was in the creek town called Little Tallahassee, which is in like the middle of Alabama. And uh, when he when he wrote that letter, Little Tallahassee was built next to or really close to the Tallapoosa River, which is along an ancient trading route uh, from Augusta to Mobile on the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, like the, the the path that this trading route, it goes back, I mean, really goes back centuries, way before European colonizers uh, ever arrived. It goes back centuries. Um, anyway, um, it's close to where, where we're talking about is close to the present day location of Lake Marion, um, mm-hmm. which was when it was built the biggest man-made lake in the world uh, when it was completed in 1926, and it was called Cherokee Bluffs. But I just want to point out in one of the great travesties of history, uh, it was renamed Lake Marion in 1936 after the president of Alabama Power, the private company that owns that bought and owns the lake. Uh, so the guy who was the president of a private power company who bought the lake renamed it after himself, Lake Marion. Uh, two signs of a totally normal, good society that a for-profit power company and a for-profit lake owner can name a lake after themselves. Perfectly normal. Though I guess in fairness, given the region, it's better than the J. Strom Thurman Lake uh, that is just above Augusta. Because, I mean, I think that's still <laughs> somehow more gross, but that's okay. Anyway, this uh, trading path was the road that several hundred Creek warriors traveled in 1779 to participate in several British military strikes in South Carolina and Georgia. Where Pulaski's men had not spread the virus, the Creek probably did. So by the end of 1779 and into 1780, British held Savannah and American held Charleston were challenged, uh, not only by the deprivations of war, but the ever-present sort of threat of the pestilence closing in around them. By March 1780, the outbreak in Savannah was so severe that like some 250 Chickamauga uh, Cherokee fled the city Basically, uh, rapidly concluding negotiations with General Prevost, the British uh, general, who wrote, quote, the Indians have gone away to shun the smallpox, but have promised to take the field whenever called upon, end quote. Uh, They actually, as it turns out, probably should have stayed where they were because um, while they were away, their families had gotten infected in a skirmish near the Holston River in Tennessee. And like when they went back, most of them got sick. Anyway, smallpox or not, by 1779, the British fortified Savannah well enough to repel the Franco-American attack that David George heard while he was laying sick, thinking he was dying in his bed. With a stronghold in Savannah, the British had a land base now to bolster an attack on Charleston, which was where they really wanted, the city they really wanted. So now the British had tried to take Charleston in like 1776 um, and had suffered a, a pretty kind of demoralizing defeat, right? Like they expected to be able to just roll over the Americans and they were defeated. And it was, you know, whatever they, they got a big sad. 
They again tried to take the city in May of 1779, but they didn't succeed because Pulaski's legion arrived like at the last minute and was able to push them back. Like that's, I mean, it was the, the attack that he died with the grape shot in the groin, but he managed to save the city of Charleston uh, in the, in the process. But the British were really determined to take Charleston because they figured from Charleston, they could sort of have, uh, like Savannah is a little bit too far south. The, 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 the colony of, of Florida was not, or East and West Florida were not at war. They had not joined the revolution. And despite the Americans trying to get them to join. And so Georgia is kind of um, uh, strategically important, but like it's really kind of far away from most of the fighting, right? Uh, Georgia is still a pretty sparsely uh, settled colony at that point. So if they could get a uh, a stronghold in Charleston, you know, Charleston being a really important psychologically, but also important militarily and just important economically, that's where the British really wanted to be. So they were really determined to get that in the same way that Washington was determined to take New York. Anyway, by spring of 1780, uh, the British had amassed like 10,000 troops outside Charleston, giving them a huge numerical advantage over the Americans. Um, by that spring, um, Charleston, uh, by that spring in Charleston, uh, Charleston was really vulnerable. The defenses were weakened. Their numbers were few. And maybe most important, smallpox had launched an advance, an advanced assault on the town starting in November of 1779. The American general William Moultrie wrote, quote, new discoveries are made every day of the smallpox. The persons are immediately removed to the pest house, end quote. Commander Benjamin Lincoln hoped that Washington's Continental Army could spare some men to help them reinforce uh, Charleston. But another miserable winter at Morristown, New Jersey, left his troops depleted as well. Lincoln had to turn to militias to bolster the ranks. But again, the problem with the regulars was that they served at their own pleasure. They were resistant to the rules of discipline expected of regular soldiers, and they were not inoculated. So these militiamen were not only vulnerable to smallpox, they were actually like terrified of it. Um, so when militias were called to defend Charleston in February of 1780, Moultrie rather depressingly informed Benjamin Lincoln, quote, not one militiaman at this place on duty, not one showed up, end quote. They refused because they were, quote, much averse to going to town for fear of the smallpox breaking out. The men believed the pox would be worse to them than the enemy, end quote. No, that, that's, that's logical. I mean, you know, these are, you know, it's the, the whole thing where it's like you go back that far in time and you're like, people are all dumb and superstitious. But also, like, there's lots of examples of regular people making pretty smart decisions, like all the time, you know, like understanding their best interests. Um, anyway, and also not, but still. Um, so anyway, Benjamin Lincoln was furious. He wrote back, quote, I am much surprised to find the militia so unreasonable. They have nothing to fear from the smallpox, end quote. No, none. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah, Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. And I love that he's like writing this from far away. Like, you know, he's in Virginia. Yeah. He's like, he's like, ah, <laughs> oh, what are you talking about? It's fine. You know, I've been inoculated. It was fine. Anyway. Um, soldiers from Virginia also refused to come to Charleston, afraid of catching the smallpox. And so when Sir Henry Clinton's troops uh, which numbered at least 10,000, uh, sort of got close to Charleston. The Charleston, the, the American forces defending Charleston were about 5,000 men. So, you know, half, give or take. 
The Pennsylvania Gazette reported on what was going on in Charleston. Quote, men from the country all around had been called in to defend the city, but they have excused themselves on account of the smallpox raging there now. End quote. After a month-long siege that culminated on a full night of shelling on May 9th and 10th, Benjamin Lincoln's entire army surrendered, and Clinton took the city on May 12th, taking all of the Americans as POWs. Now, Sir Henry Clinton paroled almost all of the men if they simply promised to lay down their arms and stop fighting, which is so quaint. Like, okay, look, we'll let you go back, but you got to promise not to come back and fight anymore. Now, I'm going to hold you to it. You can be free, but just uh, you can't come back and fight us anymore. It's so it's so cute. Um, anyway, I, I sorry. I think that I find it hilarious. Just well, it, it was like like earlier you mentioned somebody like died in a duel. Like you, you can imagine like <laughs> trying to bring that back. Like if you have a beef with somebody, you slap them with a glove and like all right, six o'clock Friday, we're gonna like your pistols at dawn. It's isn't that, walk ten paces. But isn't yeah. that isn't that what Twitter is? No. I mean, I was going to say, I thought that was like the sole purpose of Twitter was essentially nope. to modern nope. day dueling. You know, nope. not at uh, all. You, th- you, you, throw as, <laughs> you throw as many, like hurl as many insults as you can, see what sticks. And then you're like, all right, everybody walks away. All right. <laughs> everybody walks away. You know, um, it is a silly place. Uh, anyway, um, so, okay. So, uh, Clinton, after he paroles all these American POWs, he returns to New York and he leaves Lord Cornwallis in charge of putting down all of the rebels in the backcountry of, of the Carolina backcountry. As many as 2,000 paroled American men scattered back across the backcountry, across the country, having just left a city ravaged not only by the shelling, but also by smallpox. Excuse me. How many of them carried the virus back home? We will never know, but like pockets of smallpox outbreak everywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. As for Charleston, things got worse during the British occupation. Children became sick in, in ever growing numbers. And by July, the, uh, the situation had become, quote, more unfavorable than they were three months ago. End quote. The British troops were largely unaffected by the pestilence. But they succumbed in droves to the malaria carried by millions of mosquitoes born in the South Carolina swamps. Um, yeah. Yeah. The British, um, the British intended to put down the rebellion in Carolina, like, like within days of taking Charleston. That was the whole point of taking Charleston was that they were going to then like run roughshod over the rebels in the backcountry. But, uh, unfortunately for them, they carried like smallpox to the loyalist and, uh, to like the loyalist communities all over town as they, or I mean, all over this, the the colony as they they rode around. Um, you know, this affected patriot civilians alike, but like they just spread smallpox everywhere they went. Um, and in November, the notorious British uh, colonel, a guy named Banastray Tarleton, noted that all of the Americans around Singleton Mills, South Carolina, had taken up arms. Quote, except such that have ha- that have the smallpox. End quote. Tarleton who was known as the butcher also known as the green dragoon was the inspiration for the villain villain, uh, Colonel Benjamin Tavington from the movie, the Patriot, a movie that annihilates history and poisons the mind. But Mike I, probably I, thinks I, I didn't, great. I didn't see that movie. I didn't see the Patriot. 
with uh, uh, with with Mel, Mel with Mel. Yes. I I wish I wish I were shooting Jews. Gibson. No, it, it it just seemed it just seemed like um you know, and Heath. No, it, 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 it seemed like a like a like a pale like American version of Braveheart. And I wasn't interested. I mean, I like Braveheart, but I wasn't going to pay to see it again. Right. But, you know, like with you know, stars and stripes on it. My favorite thing about that movie is that Mel Gibson plays a South Carolina slave owner. Uh, well, he's not a slave owner. He's a South Carolina large landowner who is the only person, as far as I can tell, in all of South Carolina history who employs uh, employs paid wage black labor in South Carolina. So, like, there's a whole scene where he makes a point of, like, uh, no. This man's not enslaved. He works for me by his own free will, and I pay him a wage. You know, it's like, oh, oh, come on! Like this is such not. It's such, it's such like we want to put this thing, this movie in South Carolina, <laughs> but like we are terrified to do anything even remotely historically accurate. So uh, <laughs> we're gonna make him like the only guy who's like a an employer. Uh, of, like you know, it's like oh, come on, mm-hmm. just, just, just you know, just. G- Wrestle, wrestle with the possibility that maybe there's bad stuff too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the the villain in that movie, the the evil British colonel, is uh is based on this guy Tarleton. So, uh, which is kind of interesting because Tarleton has a really interesting story. Um, his he's known actually, like I say, he's known as the butcher. He is known for his cruelties. Uh, however, his actual story is a little bit more complicated than the sort of propaganda about him would have you kind of think. In May of 1780, Tarleton led a force of 149 American loyalists to overtake and overwhelm a force of somewhere between 350 and 380 Virginia Continentals, so like regular soldiers. So he he led a group of 100, not less than 150 American like militiamen, mm-hmm. loyalists, to overtake a group that was that was more than double his size. Uh, that were led by Colonel uh, Abraham Buford. Now, Buford's men took tremendous casualties because he refused to surrender. Now, Tarleton was was brilliant. He utilized the the geography. He did sort of an asymmetrical warfare thing. Caught them in an, uh, by in a surprise attack, and was able to like. I mean, it was a rout. I mean, he routed them. But Buford refused to surrender despite the fact because like he did not know what he was up against, didn't realize he was up against a smaller force, and he was just out he was out he was out thought in the battle. I mean he was mm-hmm. just, you know. Anyway, Buford refused to surrender at first. But once his men were devastated, he finally flew the white flag. Now, with the white flag still flying for surrender, Tarleton was coming to accept the surrender. And that is when one of the Continental soldiers shot at Tarleton. He missed, but he killed his horse. As a result, Tarleton's men slaughtered the remaining Virginians. Because, of course, you do not do that. You don't pretend you do you're not surrendering. Do that. So 113 men were killed of the 350 to 380. And uh, 203 were captured. So they, they had to be super pissed at the guy who fired that shot. Let me tell you, like they no, were probably all standing there. Were, all of a sudden, were, the gun goes off. Were. You could see all their heads kind of turn and look at that one guy that fired. As yeah, no, it was, about it to was Thomas. It was Thomas. <laughs> well, I, how do we how do we know that horse didn't die of smallpox? <laughs> he uh, he was suffering of smallpox, and they had to put him out of his misery with a bullet yeah. through the heart. Yeah, with a uh, yeah with a musket ball through the heart. 
Yeah. Well, but the event worked pretty well for American propaganda because like the handful of men that managed to escape. And again, 113 were killed. 203 were, were captured, right? Where it became POWs. So 316 men were, uh, are accounted for of the 350 to 380. So not a whole lot of them got away, but the ones who did like basically went on to just to use the phrase Tarleton's quarter to mean shooting somebody after they've surrendered, which is rich because basically they're saying like Tarleton's men attacked the Americans after they were trying to surrender as opposed to like the opposite, which is what happened. Right. Yeah. But they weren't, you know, they didn't weren't fact checking Twitter back then. So it was, uh, yeah, fair Easy point. For them to run with the run, run with the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the event gets described by like um, um, Americans sort of uh, spreading the story as quote indiscriminate carnage, never surpassed by the most most ruthless atrocities of the most barbarous savages. End quote. So you know they weren't happy. In October 1780, Patriot militias slaughtered American loyalists after they surrendered when their commander was killed. Um, so they got revenge in October and it was the largest all American fight of the entire war with about 2000 belligerents. Like, so it was like American loyalists against American soldiers, right? Like, so, uh, and the loyalists were slaughtered. The Americans, uh, I, th- I think I say it in here somewhere later, but I think they killed like 700 people or something. Anyway, the British began deporting South Carolina's most prominent patriots, sending them to St. Augustine in British East Florida. It was there that Josiah Smith, a, an American patriot and also a plantation manager <clears throat> learned that smallpox had ravaged the enslaved population at the expansive Ashapoo plantation that he managed. On October 12, 1780, an overseer informed him, quote, we have lost with the smallpox several slaves, among them one of the most principal hands and the slave driver, end quote. Sixty acres of rice, he was told, was rotting in the fields. In December, he learned that the P.D. River plantation that he also managed was likewise devastated by smallpox, which, quote, made no small havoc among the slaves, end quote. Smith worried that these infected souls might not be able to attend to all their duties while they're sick. And by March 1781, he was very sad and and (laughs) wrote, quote, the sword, the pestilence and the fire hath ravaged our land, end quote. No mention of the human lives but uh um <laughs> but the land the land was ravaged and so i guess that's something these people that was his ghoul. baby these people his are ghouls these people are ghouls and should have all been like anyway whatever i have no i have no sympathy for plantation managers or slave owners alike i'm just like i relish when i get to read horrifying deaths and destruction of their lands it makes me giddy giddy <laughs> Giddy, Giddy, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the same yeah, way I'm just, that I'm just, I'm just picturing him on, like, you know, whatever, like the Fox News it was at the times, like, nobody wants to work sick. What was going on? Just... <laughs> nobody wants to work anymore. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even buy labor these days. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, all right. So the fall of Charleston revealed the danger of uh, relying on militias to men like Benjamin Lincoln. Like, um, People like Thomas Sumter, uh, Andrew Pickens, and the aforementioned Swamp Fox himself eventually learned how to exploit the advantage of irregular troops, um, exploiting things like their local knowledge of geography, their personal connections that would help provide supplies and a rapid and discreet kind of grapevine communications networks. Uh, 
excuse me, but before they figured these things out, Continental leaders disastrously relied on uh, irregular troops at Camden, South Carolina. There, General Horatio Gates, you might remember, the hero of Saratoga, Mm -hmm. allegedly, led an American force of about 4,000 men, and he planned to take Camden, which was only defended by 1,000 British troops, give or take. But he didn't know that Lord Cornwallis was marching with a thousand reinforcements from Charleston to Camden, which would double the force, still leaving it half the size of the American force. But still, uh, you know, you're defending a, a, you know, a a barricaded city. It's easier, right? So these motherfuckers were marching a long, long, long way. I'm just realizing this in my mind. Yeah, as you're saying this, I don't even want. I've driven (laughs) from like you know. South Carolina to you know to New Jersey. That's I don't want to New do Jersey. It oh God, yeah. did I say Cam? That's because whenever I see Camden, I think of New Jersey. No, Camden, South Carolina. Sorry. Okay. All right. Cool. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 That is just a whenever I see Camden, I just like, I I am sorry. I just uh, in my notes, I just wrote Camden and uh, and then I I ad libbed New Jersey. I apologize. You see, I hope they're not waiting for there's reinforcements, man. They're going to be a while. Yeah. No. <laughs> All right, so they're they're marching to Camden. Two thousand. They thought it was they thought it was thousand. It was two thousand. They're marching to the uh, the Trump Taj Mahal, <laughs> and um, so they doubled their troops. Okay, so um, Gates uh, Gates, however, took a route that was against the advice of like all of his officers because again, Horatio Gates is a terrible general and a gigantic piece of crap. Like, as far as I can tell, he's just a piece of shit. Um, but he, uh, who just like, like basically is only focused on inflating his own like status while never really deserving it. Um, anyway, so he took a route that was against the advice of all of his officers. And by the time they got even close, his men were half starved and they had been for many days. And in the middle of the night, they kind of encountered Cornwallis, uh, who's marching with like, you know, again, like it's the only guy like a thousand, a thousand or so troops. And by daybreak, a full scale battle was underway. A full two thirds of Gates's forces were militia compared to about a third of Cornwallis's who were like loyalist militia. And the American militia forces broke like immediately. The Virginia militia ran at the very first volley of shots. They ran away. And this incited a panic among the North Carolina militia who was right next to them. And the American line. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. wait, wait. A militia first sign of gunfire, they ran. I'm like every time I see a militia on the news, they're like all these like you know. Well, I mean, they're they're definitely most of them overweight, but they're all like, yeah, we're but <laughs> they come off as macho. But like now that we hear your history when they did encounter the enemy, it's like, oh, they're shooting back. We got to get the hell out of here. Yeah, I mean, haven't you ever seen like when the Proud Boys or or the Three Percenters or whatever go to like uh, protest? Uh, I don't know. They go to they go to protest some like dra- uh, like um, drag show story time or what a drag queen story time or whatever. And like whenever there is like a counter protest that shows up to to counter them, and even when the numbers are equal, they like immediately back down and, and like go. No, I just, I just like seeing video of them getting uh, punched in the face in New Orders Blue Monday. Yeah, um, watching Richard Spencer get punched in the face is still one of my favorite. It's it's Internet Hall of Fame, like is what yeah. that is. Yeah. Um, just one of the greatest moments of all time. Um, that and the, cry- of- and the crying Nazi. Those are just like two of the greatest 
the greatest little internet moments of all time. Speaking of crying Nazis. No. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of top percenters, I have started um, frequenting a local watering hole that, unbeknownst to me, is a local hangout for the three pagans. percenters for the who? pagans the pagans like pagans club what is, what is this the what motorcycle is this? club oh okay i thought you meant like in the movie dragnet no the one percent motorcycle gang <laughs> yeah. like the oh, Larry, that's, uh, this is good okay. yeah deep cut anyway yeah yeah, it was yeah. Good. that is um, a lot that's god i haven't seen that in 40 years i mean back um, when tom hanks did comedy it was good stuff yes 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 yeah. Yeah, so, and I actually met a few. Okay. Very, very interesting individuals. Very nice guys, actually. Yeah. They you have go their roles. You should go outside and push their bikes over and see what happens. <laughs> no, actually, like, uh, I was, I did a show up in Canada one time, and, like, there was a, there was a group at the show, uh, they, they were, uh, it was, like, bikers against child abuse. Yeah, and, uh, which I, I, I said, oh, they, must, they must hate to see you in church. <laughs> I, I i love those right i I love these uh i love these like re, like sort of absurd things where it's like uh bikers against child abuse like who's for child abuse i'm sorry who was who are you protesting against like nobody's it's you know it's like i'm against cancer hey, yeah look, i you, mean like sure you I mean, are yeah i mean look hey you the like sometimes they just want to like you know because people, they see bikers, they think it's like some sort of like outlaw thing. So they're trying to just like, you know, uh, d- disassociate like, you know, because most biker groups are just basically they're just there to ride, you sure. know, and, and, and talk, mm-hmm. you know, shop about, you know, stuff. And, and it's not like what you see in Sons of Anarchy. So I get it, you know. Yeah, well, of course not. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it couldn't. Yeah. That, you, talk, talk about a Talk about a show that lost the plot. Um. Yeah, anyway, sorry. It was like, starts out as a, like a cool show where they're doing like minor things. And like, by like the fourth season, they're like, yeah, basically we're doing bombs that could take down like the Oklahoma, like the Oklahoma federal building. And it's like, I, I don't under, like you were like a scrappy band of, of guys in like a small California town, like running 50 guns a year. What, what are you, I don't understand. Like, wait, you're part of the IRA now? I don't, I don't understand what, what happened? Yeah, it's bananas. That's um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty good show for the first like three seasons, but they yeah, they, they run really, out of like, ideas that's, sometimes. That's just well, that's just Eddie's show. Yeah, yeah well, it, it is lot, mo- yeah, it is most shows. Like where you like they people get a show and they're like, I've got this story I want to tell. It'll probably take me, you know, yeah. realistically thirty episodes to tell it, you know, or whatever. Do you really uh, do, you, do you know the show that really did that? I think the most in my mind. If you guys remember the show Weeds, that was on uh, Showtime. I I didn't watch that. It, it seemed it seemed like. Diet Breaking Bad. It was yeah, um, except before little, it. It was so good in the first like season, and then it just got so haywire. You could tell that the writers just completely ran out of ideas, and they just right. did, had no idea what to do. And I, I like. Um, sorry, this is a long digression, but like, did have either of you ever watched the show Supernatural? Nope. Nope. Oh, I'm surprised, Larry. I thought you would like that show. So. I no, uh, no I I couldn't get like I couldn't get into like Supernatural or, or what was the other show that was like related to it um with uh Alyssa Milano in it oh uh, uh, Charmed 
charmed. Yeah. Just because like, yeah. Yeah. I, I never really, I never really got into charmed. I mean, I, I watched it a bit. It was fine, but I never really cared about it. Um, supernatural. I actually had a student turn me onto it after it had been one, you know, and like the very first one I watched was like a guy, I, the, like I turned the show on and I'm watching for about eight seconds when a guy gets like, um, like, like sliced up by a table saw at a time where I was using a table saw on a pretty regular basis. And I was like, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing this. This is, <laughs> no, I don't know why I recommend okay, this. <laughs> actually, when, when I would like, uh, sometimes when I would go in the gym in the morning, Supernatural would be on the TV, but I would, I would see it, but I wouldn't hear it. And I, I just got the impression that Supernatural was like a modern day version of like, uh, remember that TV show, like Friday the 13th, the series where they were chasing yeah. like cursed artifacts, stuff like that. It felt like that. And I was like, okay, yeah. I, I get it. But like, I, I much prefer the, uh, the other series, you know, that it was based on. Now I'm going to say this about Supernatural. I, I, you know, there's, there's not, I don't find anything particularly deep or, or meaningful about it. It's not uh, profound in any way, but in terms of like, uh, you know, if you're watching a soap opera, it's a pretty good one. Um, I mean, and again, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean that to be, but like, there are shows that are just soap operas mm-hmm. and there are shows that sure. this, this is sort of one of them, but I will say this, the first five seasons of that show, they had a, like, they, they really seemed to have a story they wanted to tell that culminated at the end of the fifth season. And then they came back for the sixth season and it was like, wait, what? Like, wait, <laughs> wait, wait. Like it was, it was really brilliant. Like, cause by the time you got to the fifth season, you're like, oh, it's the story of these two brothers. And they basically like, it all culminates in the two of them. Essentially. I know this is going to sound stupid, but like it culminates in the two of them becoming vessels for the archangels, Lucifer and Michael. And it basically is this like whole sibling rival. Like, so it's like a sibling rivalry story that like you can sort of trace back to the beginning season. You're like, Oh, I get it. Like I get the, you know, you have one brother who goes off, wants to go off and not be part of this other lifestyle. And be, you know what I mean? Like it, it all kind of, it all kind of makes sense in a, in a really interesting way. And it builds up to a pretty good conclusion. And then they did like season six and seven. And I was just like, well, they did season six and I was like, huh? Okay. And then I watched season seven and I was like, huh? They've really mm-hmm. lost the plot. Like they've really, and and then I haven't right, really well, watched can, it since. Can we can we get back to like Charleston and this bad general who let his uh, soldiers starve have, and didn't want have, to like uh, march have, past Stuckies on the way to wherever the hell they were going so they could get something to eat? They went to Bucky's. Um, okay, so yeah, Stuckies, yeah. Stuckies or Waffle oh. House or oh, you Shelly's. don't know, you don't know Bucky's? Nope. I can't believe that. That's your your uh, your comedy focuses too much in the north. Bucky's is like a huge thing here down here down in the south. Anyway, all right, yes, Stuckies. Okay, all right. So the troops were routed uh, back to where we were. The American line collapsed because like the militia all ran away. And the troops were routed. General uh, Baron de Cobb, a Franco-German who was sent to assist the Americans, was killed in the battle and. Again, just like DeKalb, Georgia is like named after him. So whatever. Uh, so another, I guess my point is Georgia has a lot of counties named after losers. Um, guys that just got like killed. <laughs> like this guy gets killed in a route, uh, you know, but in Gwinnett, Gwinnett County, like dudes killed in a duel. And Georgia's like, we should name a county after that guy. Anyway, um, Gates fled to Hillsborough, North Carolina to try and reassemble the American Southern Army. Army. Remember, he started with 4,000 men, uh, but there were only about 700 remaining when he got to Hillsborough. We don't actually 
casualty reports, but we know that Cornwallis took 1,000 American prisoners. So it's like unbelievable. Yeah, most of them were militia members. Now, Cornwallis did not parole the prisoners like Clinton had before him. Instead, Cornwallis, uh, being an idiot, put them aboard these like sweltering prison ships in Charleston Harbor. British prison ships were notoriously awful. One such ship was of, of these like ships of misery. Uh, one of them was called the Jersey and it was kept off the coast of long Island, which tracks. Um, and about uh, this guy wrote about this to- guy, Thomas Dring wrote about his imprisonment aboard the Jersey. He, uh, when he approached the ship, he wrote the stench produced a sensation of nausea far beyond my powers of description. Once he was aboard, he described quote, the disgusting object which met my sight was a man <laughs> suffering with the smallpox. And in a few minutes, I found myself surrounded by many others laboring under the same disease in every stage of its progress, end quote. Oh, now, this guy, yeah, it's pretty horrible. That's the cruise I signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> now, this guy, Thomas Dring, I-, I think is actually a pretty cool dude. He managed to inoculate himself. He sliced open his hand. Well, he sliced open his hand between his thumb and his fingers. So he sliced his hand open right here, which Mm -hmm. I'm always like fascinated. These guys like, I'm going to cut myself right here along the thumbnail or I'm going to cut myself. Like, I'm like, there are less painful places to cut yourself, but they're like, where's it going to hurt the most and affect me the hardest? Like right here (laughs) where I have to move my thumb. I'll do it there. Anyway, he managed to inoculate himself. He sliced himself open between his thumb and his forefingers. And then he, he like, got a rag like a dirty rag and he dragged it through somebody else's dirty like broken pustule and then rubbed it through his wound in order to make sure he could inoculate himself now 40 years later after you know after all this he still had the scar and he said quote he was interviewed he said quote i often look at it when alone and it brings fresh to my recollection the scene in which i was placed and the feelings which I then experienced. So, like, I like this guy. Like, you know, I mean, dude, mm-hmm. like, slices himself open, inoculates himself, survives. And he's like, every time I look at this scar, like, I smell that, like, disgusting stench. And I, I like, ex- re-experience. I mean, like, that sounds like PTSD, but it's uh, kind of cool. Anyway. The men in Camden prison, prison ships probably had similar experiences to drink. Um, According to Dr. Peter Faiso, the men, quote, were in general infected with the smallpox and very few had gone through that disorder. In other words, none of them were immune End quote. Uh, furthermore, he explained quote, the wretched objects were fed on salt provisions without the least medical aid or any proper kind of nourishment. End quote. The result, according to Fezu was quote, was a smallpox with a fever of the putrid type and a putrid dysentery End quote. <laughs> so delightful conditions. Um, I, I, I see this, this phrasing a lot where you have like a fever of the putrid type and putrid is like, you know, stinky and disgusting. And I'm like, I've never yeah. seen me with a stinky fever, but I guess that's like, I don't know. I guess I've had a fever where I'm like my, where, you know, I'm like, man, I've sweat through my pillow and my pillow smells kind of salty and gross. I guess that's what they mean. But a putrid dysentery, I think we can all imagine. At least 150 of the men died. And then in September and October, yellow fever swept the ships, heaping, you know, misery upon misery. Uh, Continued skirmishing in the Carolina backcountry, though, led to even more American prisoners. 
Some of these were housed in the cramped, uh, cramped two-story jail in Camden, and others were kept in what were like notorious prison pens. They, these prison pens were just unsheltered animal pens, like those that, you know, for cows or pigs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would just like keep them in these outdoor pens. Uh, among those arrested after a skirmish was a 14-year-old, Andrew Jackson, who uh, was involved in a skirmish at the North South, North South Carolina border. I don't know, but I assume this was at like Pedro's South of the border monument to racism or whatever. Um, but uh, he was, yeah, there at the, the South North Carolina border, he was forced to march 45 miles. Um, this future monstrous ghoulish president and his brother, Robert were confined in a pox infested jail where they Bobby. also became infected. Their mother, Elizabeth Jackson, managed to free the two of them in a prisoner swap. She managed to capture uh, some sort of British soldier and, and trade them for her sons. That's a but bad bitch. By, yeah. But by then, they were both symptomatic with uh, with smallpox. Robert was in especially bad condition, and he had to be, like, propped up on a horse. So Andrew had to walk the whole trip home, and it rained the whole way. Um, <laughs> poor Andrew Jackson. Although a bit of this Andy. story... A bit of this story feels a bit like uh, when I was a kid, I had to walk two miles uphill both ways in the snow, uh-huh. but whatever. Um, Robert died two days after they got home. Uh, and then Andrew's mother left uh, several days later because she went to nurse some smallpox victims and then she caught the virus and she died. Oh, jeez. Yeah. No good deed so, goes in a punishment. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he, he suffered his punishments. Uh, yeah. He was, he, he was, he was, he lost his wife to, he was a, who he, he genuinely seems to have really, really, really loved, which is not that common back then. Um, I mean, he was a giant piece of shit, but it does, he did suffer a lot. Uh, so that's good. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's been out of order. He did most of his suffering before he was a giant piece of shit, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe that call anyway, whatever. Maybe there's a causal thing there. I'm not sure. By October 1780, the uh, balance of power began to shift in the Southern campaign. Cornwallis's army was ravaged by yellow fever and malaria after an especially long mosquito season. And locals hardly ever just, like suffered from uh, malaria because people that lived there had like their repeated exposures They're to mosquitoes time, yeah. Yeah, had, had kind of seasoned them. So they, they generally didn't suffer from these things. So uh, the British were especially vulnerable to that. Uh, additionally, American militiamen, uh, militiamen had gotten revenge for Tarleton's earlier actions. I mentioned this earlier, and this was at the Battle of Kings Mountain, where they captured like 700 loyalists and they killed hundreds more. Wow. But nothing was as important to American successes as Horatio Gates getting fired and replaced by Nathaniel Green. Nathaniel Green may be the only general on the American side that you can really be like, Hey, that's a guy we should root for because he was pretty smart. He was a pretty smart dude. Um, so, and Gates was fired basically after he lost, after he lost the whole Southern army at Camden. So mm-hmm. Nathaniel green kind of understood that, that the British were, you know, not in Britain anymore. And so he thought like the best thing to do would be to like lead the British on basically a wild goose chase. Nathaniel green essentially lost every battle he ever fought, ever fought, but his tactics won the war. So um, he led Cornwallis through this wild goose chase through the Carolina backcountry. He basically utilized the militia for like 
these like quick hit and run strikes that we talk about mm-hmm. today. Like when people like talk about the American Revolution. Stuff. Yeah, guerrilla warfare, we would say, or asymmetrical war. Um, that was Nathaniel Green that really like made that part of the army strategy. And he would like just like pester, pester the British constantly. He'd send like little little ambushes and generally, you know, this like asymmetric warfare that was um effective in being annoying, but it would have never really won the war, but he was able to like inflict enough damage slowly but surely to really demoralize uh Cornwallis and his army. Eventually Cornwallis, because because Green basically carried nothing with him, he didn't keep a supply line, he sort of relied on um the militia's ability to to get supplies and he had sharpshooters and stuff to hunt and all this other stuff. He he um and there were other tactics, but like he didn't really carry a lot of supplies, so he was able to move very quickly. He also had a smaller army than Cornwallis. So he he basically would do like hit and run, hit and run, hit and run, keep moving. And Cornwallis eventually had to like abandon or he eventually abandoned like all of his wagons, his tents, his food provisions, and his other the rest of his supply line just to try and keep up with Green as he chased him through the backcountry. And Green did this for like a two hundred mile like hustle through the Carolinas, like 200 miles of marching, you know, like just constantly hit and run, hit and run, hit and run. Um, Green's forces faced Cornwallis at the Guilford courthouse in North Carolina. And uh, the Americans lost the field, but they inflicted almost double the casualties before retreating again. And that was like the first time that Green actually faced uh, Cornwallis in anything that even resembled like a pitched battle. Like he, Mm -hmm. he kind of knew that he had to eventually do that. Um, but they retreated again, and then Cornwallis had to give chase. Furthermore, uh, because they abandoned provisions, the British were now forced to like commandeer supplies from residents, turning you know the locals against them. Right, while Green's militias were able to, they were never really that far from like friends or family who they could kind of call on for help. Uh, Cornwallis had to like go into towns and be like, you know, like sorry, folks, I'm taking your stuff. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm taking your food. Um. And again, partly this is because Cornwallis just Cornwallis never really understood the situation he was in. But of course, um, it was more than just that, you know, just men that scrambled through the Carolina interior interior. As always, the pestilence rode alongside the soldiers. The Moravian town of Salem that we mentioned before was again ravaged um, after they had contained the previous outbreak in 1779. So they were again ravaged in 1780. This time, the virus, however, spread like the gospel from one Moravian town to the next, striking Friedberg, then Bethabara, and then Bethania in 1780 and 81. There's a story from Bethania that illustrates the whole situation. On February 4th, uh, 1781, a group of American militiamen arrived at Bethania with one man among them, quote, breaking out in smallpox, end quote. The Americans left quickly, uh, but five days later, Cornwallis agree, uh, arrived in hot pursuit. A diary described Cornwallis's men, uh, described how Cornwallis's men took some like 30 cattle and countless sheep, geese, and chickens. But when the army left the next day, like Cornwallis only stayed one day, the Moravians found, quote, as much as two wagon loads of meat simply wasted, end quote, <laughs> left around the campfires uneaten. So you could see how like the British would like piss people off, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's one thing if you're coming and getting provisions for your army, it's a whole other thing when you're like, I'm taking all of this stuff, and then you just like leave well, it all wasted. Waste it. Here, here's the thing, though. Like, I Douche don't think bags. the British, like you know, were prepared for how spicy the food is here in the United States. Like, I'm pretty sure, like regular, like North Carolina barbecue sauce just 
blew their like taste buds out <laughs> and they just it's like all right i can't finish this and everything because you know you know like because like they recently opened up a popeyes the first popeyes in the uk and everyone like we went there it was like yeah this is great but like why is this so spicy this is like just regular ass fried chicken that we're used to sure. and they and it gets over to britain you're like this is spicy so hot why me so yeah it's probably what happened what is this mustard yeah, yeah. yeah. Barbecue sauce, this is awful yeah, until yeah, you yeah. get hot chicken. Until Vinegar get the hot chicken. Oh my God, what the hell? And then Cornwallis went to Nashville, Dang. and the war ended very soon after. Yeah. Yep. Um, Na- Nashville hot chicken, the food that brought yep. down the British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the food that brought down an empire. Um, no, Delicious. The uh, Sorry. The Americans kind of uh, pissed off locals as well. They they would do so like no, two weeks after. They don't do that. And, Right, they never ever do that. Yes, Not even well, today, they don't do that. It's it's well known that Americans uh, always win hearts and minds. Um, <laughs> yeah, my oh, sorry, I have to digress for one second. My favorite yeah. thing about uh, about a, a just a garbage guy, uh, Aaron Sorkin, is like Aaron Sorkin when he was like doing the West Wing or whatever. Like one of the inspirations for the West Wing was he he had this idea that like. I'm sorry. He was talking about this like during the Trump administration. But he was like, before. Sorry, let me. Aaron Sorkin giving an interview during Trump said, "This is Aaron Sorkin's the guy that did the West Wing." That's what I was trying to say. He gave an interview during the Trump administration where he said, "Before Trump, when American soldiers would go into into like cities or towns or whatever around the world, people would say, thank God it's the Americans.' But not since Trump took office. Like now they don't say that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah." Since Trump took office, people were like, they stopped. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, Vietnam, like the North Vietnamese were always like, thank God it's the Americans. The, the, like Korea, thank God it's the, I'm like, Panama, are you kidding me? I'm like, like, it's the most insane. Anyway, it's the most insane, like rotted lib brain thing that you can even imagine. It's just like, just complete, just complete, like lib, lib brain rot. What do they call it? Trump derangement syndrome nonsense. Uh, anyway, so yeah, no, Americans known for uh, everybody's thrilled when American soldiers come to town. They're always the best. Uh, anyway, so Americans, uh, Americans piss people off like in Salem, where Moravians complained just two weeks after uh, Cornwallis, after they complained about Cornwallis uh, in the other town in Bethania. Uh, Moravians in in uh, Salem complained about quote unjust demands of their food and supplies. End quote from the Americans. <laughs> While the Americans were there, a Baptist preacher from Virginia arrived with the smallpox breaking out all over him. The following day at Friedberg, there were reports that Peter Fry's uh, home was a veritable lazaretto, which is like a hospital with smallpox. The adults and all eight children were in the throes of misery there. The Moravian communities <laughs> remained infected all the way until August of 1781. So like a year and a half of smallpox in the Moravian communities. And when, uh, when smallpox started to appear among uh, Nathaniel Green's men, he refused to allow inoculation because it would slow down the troops and weaken his force. He preferred to just like dismiss them rather than risk inoculation. So like, yes, because everybody marches like, you know, like an, an Olympic sprinter, <laughs> yeah but that's the thing like what's so crazy is he's just like well we're not going to slow down so like you're free to go home so 
So like you like, oh, you've got the smallpox, you're free to go. So what do you <laughs> what do you think happens? Like they go home and they infect their families. Yep. Dummy. Anyway, that said, I still like Nathaniel Green. Uh probably the closest thing to like a hero in the American military during the revolution. Like like a legitimate, like, you know, good generally good sure. tactician, saves a lot of lives. Uh, American lives or whatever. Like as these things go, Nathaniel Green's probably the best, and like nobody remembers it. Anyway, again, Nathaniel Green's probably the most important general, like in my humble opinion. After the batter, battle at Guilford Courthouse, Green pretended to pursue Cornwallis until he committed to going to Wilmington, and then Green turned his army to free the backcountry from the British. Like, which was of course easily done when he had a whole army against these like small little outposts. So he basically faked as if he was like going after Cornwallis until Cornwallis like got enough of his men far enough in a certain direction that they had essentially committed to, to their, you know, to go into, yeah, it was a really brilliant move. Um, And so then green gets to to, like liberate all these places. So, so the Americans do get to come in as conquering heroes. Um, Cornwallis then like basically decided, screw this Carolina backcountry bullshit. We're going to make the, the Chesapeake the focus of the war. So he turned north and went to Virginia. Now, on June 30th, 1779, uh, Henry Clinton issued what's called the Phillipsburg Proclamation from New York. Now, this went much further than Dunmore's proclamation a few years earlier. Phillipsburg Proclamation promised freedom to any enslaved people who, fred, who uh, fled from rebel owners, that is, men, women, or children, regardless of whether they were willing to fight for the crown. Remember, Dunmore only mm-hmm. promised freedom if he could fight. I mean, that's not really how it worked out, but this officially, this made an official policy. It also promised freedom, protection, and land after the victory. So uh, the Phillipsburg Proclamation, you know, really went a lot farther. It was, this was like, uh, you know, hey, look, you fight, we win. We'll give you, we'll give you, like, former slaves, we will give you the land of the traitors who were fighting against us. Um, that's a pretty, pretty big deal. So between Dunmore's, yeah, between Dunmore's and the Phillipsburg proclamation, some, uh, about a hundred thousand enslaved people r- tried to run away to join the British. About 5,000 fled to their freedom in Georgia alone, which was about a third of the popular, of the enslaved population in Georgia at the time in South Carolina where 60% or so of the population was enslaved, 20,000 black refugees made their way to Charleston after Clinton and and Cornwallis uh, managed to take the city. So uh, there were so many enslaved people that fled to the the British that Clinton had to actually turn people away because he didn't have enough space. So like, again, I'm sorry to keep digressing on these things, but like, this is a really big deal because of course, enslaved people are, are not allowed to be educated. They're not allowed to be literate. And yet somehow the, the news of this spreads far and wide, so much so that 100,000 people managed to, to get up and, and, and take off and risk life and limb just to try and flee, you know? It's one of the greatest marketing uh, ideas ever, you know, when you think about it. I mean, I'd rather take a moral issue and treat it as a moral issue and not a business one, but yeah. Yeah, business. Great marketing idea. Uh, so gross. Okay. Uh, anyway, to be clear, all right. Uh, enslaved people did not need 
public declarations to know where their interests were better served. Obviously, you know, they, they knew where their interests were better served to begin with. In 1775, uh, lots of enslaved folks fled to Dunmore well before Dunmore's proclamation. Likewise, many black Americans, like David George, fled to the British long before uh, Henry Clinton's 1779 announcement. Um, but, but you know, of course, that just made it kind of, uh, for a lot of people who were like, is it worth the risk? Uh, yeah, now it's worth the risk. Um, black refugees performed all sorts of essential functions for the British war machine. Black river pilots were probably the most intrepid in all the colonies because that was a job that, that they did while enslaved and they knew the rivers and the creeks and things like that. Um, the, um, they served to ferry troops to various locations and again, knew, knew the rivers better than anybody else. Black nurses, uh, assisted the sick and wounded black herdsmen tended livestock, uh, in order to feed the army. And a variety of black artisans did things like repair muskets and build barrels and repair wagons and assist in all sorts of mechanical things. These uh, runaways were among the first called to do heavy labor, like building defenses and clearing roads. But they also served as cooks and laundresses, and they maintained stables and they mended uniforms. Um, but despite the extensive labor that was required of them, runaways had to have believed that this was all worth it. Or, like, they would have just gone back, right? Um, or at least they thought it would be worth it if the British held up their end of the deal. And that is one of the... And, and let me guess, they didn't. I mean, I don't know why you're so surprised, Larry. Yeah. You're kidding me. By oh, autumn of 1779, well, part of it is that they didn't... Room. Part of it is that they lost. So the promise yeah, of land know. becomes a problem. But, yeah. Uh, and that's um, you pointed I mean, that... In, now, it's not a problem that they couldn't have resolved because the British certainly owned land, but uh, but still, they, and, you know, when they negotiated the Treaty of Paris, they could have included uh, the fate of former mm-hmm. enslaved people in their negotiations, like they could have negotiated, they could have had uh, indigenous people there at the negotiating table, things that they did not do, but whatever. Anyway, by autumn of 1779, smallpox first began to appear among these black loyalists. Uh, David George was, of course, in the first wave of infections around Savannah. Um, the vulnerability to smallpox of these uh, self-emancipated people should serve to reinforce their very Americanness, right? After all, smallpox was endemic throughout much of West Africa, so immunity was fairly common among the living, um, but enslaved people in the American colonies descended from a, li- a lineage of like Americans who were, they you know, they may have had ancestors, you know, relatives who were immune, but they, like every other American, indigenous, European descended alike, were not immune, right? Like the them being American did not confer immunity, or I mean, or rather their their ancestry did not confer immunity, right? So um if there's one through line in this whole story, it's how Americans specifically uh uniquely suffered from smallpox during the war. It's like the most common thread that weaves who is and isn't an American together, people who were vulnerable to smallpox, right? Be they, be they enslaved African-Americans, be they indigenous people, or, or be they like, you know, American born white settlers, or be they European, like, or I'm sorry. Yeah, no, not immigrants. Like any, like the Americans were the ones that suffered. Anyway, in this constant sort of flux and turmoil of war, of war, uh, fresh hosts were always available for this virus by the, you know, the end of the war, thousands of people, uh, the very people who were like the most 
desirous of freedom uh, in America, they were the ones that had their dreams most dashed by pustules and by droplets more than anything else. The aristocrat, Eliza Pinckney, wrote from British-occupied Charleston in September of 1780, quote, As the smallpox was in the British camp, thousands of blacks died miserably with it, uh, end quote. Among the black Americans infected at Charleston was Boston King. King wrote that he had discovered, quote, the happiness of liberty uh, when he escaped to the British. But unfortunately, King said, then I was seized with the smallpox and suffered great hardships, end quote. You see, uh, the British army removed all of the blacks who succumbed to the smallpox from the city. King again, quote, all the blacks affected with that disease were ordered to be carried a mile from the camp where they were left alone without nursing care. King went on. There was a grievous circumstances to me, circumstance to me and many others. We lay sometimes a whole day without anything to eat or drink, end quote. King was among the fortunate as a British soldier, uh, for whatever reason, took a shine to him and started bringing him supplies from inside the, the city a mile away and offering some care to him. And in time, Boston King recovered. When that soldier was later on seriously wounded at the Battle of Camden, Boston King rushed at the opportunity to return the favor. He, quote, he tarried with him in the hospital for six weeks until he recovered, rejoicing that it was in my power to return him the kindness he had shown me, end quote. At the end of the war, Boston King, like David George, went to Nova Scotia and then to Sierra Leone. Now, not all black refugees stayed in cities like George and King. Many of them followed Cornwallis from Charleston to Virginia, and as such, Cornwallis's army developed a reputation, as one observer noted, quote, the English, according to custom, have left the smallpox behind them, end quote. William Hooper, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, complained from Wilmington that he had lost three slaves to the British and five more to the smallpox in the wake of Cornwallis's stay uh, in Wilmington. When the British Army arrived in Virginia in 1781, April 1781, enslaved people, undisturbed by the persistence of smallpox, greeted them as liberators. According to Virginia patriot Robert Honeyman, they, quote, flocked to the enemy from all quarters, end quote. Richard Henry Lee informed his brother William that, quote, Colonel Taliaferro and Colonel Travis lost every slave they had in the world, and Mr. Paradise has lost all his but one, end quote. Poor guys, I feel so sad. 65 enslaved people absconded from William Lee's property as well. Among them, quote, 45 valuable grown slaves and useful artisans, end quote. Baron Ludwig von Clausen wrote that uh, Virginia Governor Thomas Nelson had 700 slaves before the war in 17, but I'm sorry, 700 slaves before the war. But in 1782, quote, he, ne- he has now only 80 or 100, end quote. Oh, he's struggling. Yeah, poor guy. I feel so sad. But all of their hopes and dreams of freedom uh, couldn't protect those poor souls from the ravages of smallpox. In the summer of 1781, the situation turned really grim. American soldiers pursuing the British from Richmond uh, witnessed the bodies of black loyalists left on the side of the road. The Connecticut soldier Josiah Atkins reported, quote, within these days past, I have marched by 18 or 20 blacks that lay dead by the wayside, putrefying with the smallpox. These poor creatures have no care taken of them. Many crawled into the bushes and died, where they lie infecting the air around 
with intolerable stench and great danger, end quote. Uh, smallpox became so bad, in fact, that like, despite their tremendous numbers, Cornwallis actually faced a labor shortage. Uh, again, like despite all of these people who had fled to him. In July of 1781, he wrote that more runaways were, quote, constantly wanted for a variety of fatiguing services, end quote. He needed them to do the work that white soldiers were unwilling to do. By October of 1781, Cornwallis's position became dire. The French fleet, led by the Comte de Grassi, uh, besieged the city as Washington's and Rochambeau's combined force met up with the Marquis de Lafayette's troops at Yorktown to encircle Cornwallis. Washington had been planning an attack on New York, but Rochambeau finally convinced Washington to attack uh, to march south to Virginia. As the Franco-American noose tightened around Cornwallis, his troops suffered shortages of food, forage, and supplies. Cornwallis decided that the pox-ridden black refugees were an unacceptable drain on his limited resources, and he cruelly betrayed many of them. As early as July and August, some British generals had already begun to begun this sort of great betrayal when they left hundreds of infected refugees behind to face pretty bleak outcomes, to die by the pox or to face the retribution of their once and future masters. Those patriotic oligarchs returned to seize and punish the human beings that they kept as chattel pop, uh, property while singing songs of freedom and draping themselves in the flag of liberty. At Yorktown, Cornwallis would do much the same. Uh, the American James Thatcher wrote, quote, the British have sent from Yorktown a large number of blacks sick with the smallpox, end quote. The Continental soldier George Joseph Plum Martin recorded, quote, we saw in the woods herds of blacks which Cornwallis had turned adrift with no recompense for their confidence in his humanity than the smallpox for their bounty and starvation and death for their wages, end quote. Even Cornwallis's most seasoned Hessians were appalled by Cornwallis's behavior. Johann Ewald pointed out, quote, I would just as soon forget to record a cruel happening. On the same day of the enemy assault, we drove back to the enemy all of our black friends whom we had taken along to despoil the countryside. We had used them to good advantage and set them free. And now, with fear and with trembling, they had to face the reward of their cruel masters, end quote. The Virginia Patriot Patriot, St. George Tucker, was more blunt. Quote, an immense number of blacks met their end in the most miserable manner in Yorktown. Uh, skirmishes continued for like two more years. The British surrender at Yorktown on October 19th of 1781 marked the end of the war in the 13 colonies, basically. Uh, a Pennsylvania soldier named Ebenezer Denny wrote about that day somewhat differently than the way the story has been passed down to us. He described a British parade of pestilence and a drunken riot by a defeated army. For Denny, it was not a day of triumph, but a day of inconceivable tragedy. Quote, glad to be rede- relieved from this disagreeable station. Blacks lie about sick and dying in every stage of the smallpox. Never was I in so filthy a place, end quote. Thomas Jefferson estimated that of the 30,000 enslaved Virginians that he figured out that he had calculated fled to the British. About 27,000 died of smallpox and camp fever. That's 27,000 out of 30,000. That's, um, that's not good. That's Un- a lot. It's, it's an unimaginable suffering. Yes. 
yes. On the American Wouldn't side. Wouldn't want to be on that trip. Would not want to be on that trip. Not yeah, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. On the American mm-hmm. side, once again, many believe that re- releasing the sick refugees was a British plot to infect continental forces and civilians. Josiah Atkins had written as much on June 24th, believing that Cornwallis, quote, inoculated four or 500 blacks in order to spread smallpox through the country and sent them out for that purpose, end quote. At Yorktown, an American surgeon's mate, James uh, Thatcher, thought that former slaves were sent out for the purpose of communicating the infection to our army. Other patriots, like New York's Robert Livingston, sent lurid accusations to his friends in Europe in the hopes of bringing more allies into the war. Even Benjamin Franklin repeated the claim in his, uh, quote, retort in his, uh, he wrote a thing called the retort, retort courteous. Uh, and there's some evidence that, that bears all this out that, that maybe Cornwallis did. In 1778, an officer wrote a book explicitly suggesting this very tactic, saying the British should, quote, dip arrows in matter of smallpox and twang them at the American rebels in order to inoculate them. This would sooner disband these stubborn, ignorant, enthusiastic savages than any other compulsive measures, end quote. On July 13, 1781, General Alexander Leslie wrote to Cornwallis outlining his plan to use black refugees as biological weapons. Quote, above 700 blacks are come down the river in the smallpox. I shall distribute them about the rebel plantations, end quote. Regardless, whether intentional or not, Cornwallis abandoned his once allies to a grim fate. Furthermore, even though there were a significant number of militia among Washington's troops at Yorktown, the massive inoculation program he had conferred on his army a great proportion of immune soldiers, and smallpox was largely contained with, contained with one notable exception in Cumberland County, Virginia, in November and December, which prompted a mass inoculation of like 2,000 men at West Point. The virus never gripped the, the Continental Army again during the remainder of the war. It should also be noted that, like, indigenous groups in the South overwhelmingly sided with the British. American westward expansion was a serious threat, and the British had made it illegal to settle west of the Appalachians, though Americans simply ignored the law and did so anyway. So it makes sense that powerful southern groups of Chickasaw Creek and Cherokee would generally ally themselves with the British. For Creek and Cherokee communities in particular, their alliance led to smallpox outbreaks in 1779 and 80 that devastated their populations and had serious ramifications after the war when they were left out of the treaty process altogether, right? For Creeks, Chickasaws, and Cherokees in the South and Iroquois in the North, the war was a disaster. They chose the losing side and were ravaged by smallpox to boot. In the coming years, they'd be forced to face American expansion in a far weaker position than they had been when the war began. The promises of freedom and liberty simply did not apply to them as far as the Americans were concerned. For indigenous populations, like it did for African Americans, the American victory brought disease, misery, and humiliation. So even though this is where our story ends, it was not the end of the story for uh, the variola virus. As the American War for Independence wound down, smallpox traveled westward, carving up communities of indigenous people as far away as California and British Columbia. The pox spread through the Great Plains, shifting the balance of power among groups, allowing bands of Sioux to come to dominate their law, these long-contested regions. Powerful Comanches that had long been at war with the Spanish in Texas, but after smallpox, 
laid waste to the Southwest in the 1770s, the Comanche formed an alliance with the Spanish against powerful Apache further west. When Lewis and Clark surveyed the Louisiana Territory in 1806, a full generation had passed since smallpox had like completely altered and in many places cleared the landscape. The shifting landscape uh, sort of reflect a, a really American story as the smallpox epidemic that swept through North America from the 1770s to 80s impacted Americans of all stripes. And because it's a disease that only transmitted through contact or communication, its spread tells a story about the ties that kind of bound the American geography altogether, right? The human linkages that connected places as far away as Vancouver to Charleston and to Boston and to Santa Fe. Long before railroads or telegraphs or telephones, planes or highways, the story of the great American smallpox epidemic is a human story, a story about human connections, their importance, uh, you know, and then the, the communication between people. It was a pox upon our collective American house. And it Absolutely. fundamentally Amen. changed everything. Damn right it did. Amen. So there you go. There's your pox upon this house any pox upon this house any thoughts any com- uh i'm just glad that i don't have to hear about any more of this suffering yeah crazy you know pox. what i'm saying that was a horrible disease horrible one of the reasons i wanted to tell this story was in part because i i find it fat like the the I think the revolution part is kind of neat because like are interesting because like if pox, if smallpox doesn't ravage Cornwallis's army, like all of the, all of these runaway, these runaway slaves, these self-emancipated people, like, I don't know that Washington and Rochambeau, I don't know that they win. Like for whatever it's worth, the British defeat the French and Dutch and Spanish everywhere else in the world. They win everywhere else. And Nowhere else has smallpox. You, you know what I mean? Like, it's hard to know if you think of a hundred thousand, you know, runaway, like self-emancipated people joining the British forces, even if they're not soldiers, they're just doing all of the work. They're doing all of the labor that runs the army. It's hard to imagine, you know what I mean? That like that the, the Americans could necessarily win, but like, if you're talking about death rates of 27,000 out of 30,000 people dying, you know I mean? That's like just, yeah. dev- it's just devastating. I don't know. Like another episode of the, the diseases that made America. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, well, I, the thing that I found that was really interesting. And that, yeah. I also thought it was interesting that it, it kind of did our work for us to clear our way to expand across the, the land of America. I like how you um, say our, which is uh, interesting. So yeah. Um, but uh it's a it's just your your play your your uh your your talent on yourself but yeah um one of the things that i that that, i mean that that's a story that is far more complicated than that either but like one of the i don't know this this story was had had a lot of complexities to it yeah well yeah i mean i meant the the westward expansion is a pretty complicated story too like white white people uh conquering the the west is not like it's not all just like it's not the way it's sort of done in the imagination. Like, um, I mean, it is it is a negotiated. Hey, I, hey, I saw treaties. Back to the Future three. I know how it was done. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dances so. with wolves. I saw the dances with wolves. And what then there was Doc Party. You know that was you know. I've not okay. I'm, I'm out of my depth. 
Uh, one of the things I think is really interesting is how like smallpox basically wipes out all of these like uh, or or impacts all of these small groups in the Great Plains, and so the Sioux come to dominate an area that had long been just like uh, contested terrain, and as a result, the, like as the Americans move westward, excuse me, they have they have these like these weakened, but uh, these weakened groups to fight, but they're also uh, they've like the power dynamics have shifted, and so like the Sioux haven't really like dominated the area for very long. You know, by the time Americans start pushing west and, you know, pushing out into the Great Plains. And so, you know, you have this, like, I don't know, it's just a very different dynamic. It's like a, a group that hasn't really been the power center for very long, all of a sudden trying to defend their power center, uh, which is a very different dynamic than, you know, when you're in a contested terrain. Like, you know, things are just different when it's contested. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, contested space... um, contested space operates differently than like a space where there one one party has a clear uh numerical advantage you still have to grind it out but like i don't know it's like uh it's like the war of 1812 the united states had not been in charge of this land very long and so canadians like come down and burn the capital to the ground because like defending your territory is a little different than anything they'd had to do before. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't something they knew how to do, you know, it was the first opportunity to try and like defend your territory, you know, it was a new. And so, you know, you, you learn from that and you, uh, you, if you survive it, you learn from it and you, I don't know, whatever. It's just different, different ways to deploy power anyway. All right. Uh, Larry, you want to plug your pluggables since, you know, Uh, everybody's tired. uh... Yeah, you can uh, find my uh, CDs on uh, iTunes or CD Baby uh, under Larry XL. Uh, you can uh, follow me, uh, Larry XL, on Twitter, comedian Larry XL on Instagram, and uh, Larry XL on Facebook. <laughs> All right, I know this guy. This ran long, Mike. Mike, we're my on man. Twitter. We're on Twitter. We're on Twitter. We're on um, Instagram, and. We're on pretty much anywhere you consume your favorite podcast. And we're also available for donations at Cash App, right? Or no, is that not up yet? No That's Cash not, App yet? I can't no, cash me outside yet? No. Uh, I was oh, gonna put damn it, it. Come on, man. I, I was planning on setting up a tip jar, but yeah. Uh, but A tip jar but, will work. Tip but this jar is, work. I'm, 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 I'm throwing to you. You can email you. us, too. You're, you can email us, so, too, at unbalancedviews yeah. at gmail.com. Oh, there you, you got go, one baby. of them. But you're supposed to know this stuff. They all know where to find us. They're listening to us, baby. Just like and share. Like and share. If you hear me now, hit the like button and share us. And subscribe. There we go. And subscribe. We're almost, we're on our way to our first thousand subscribers. We're almost there. This is, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, when this goes live, this will be our uh, legally old enough to drink like uploaded content uh it's not it's our 16th episode but it is our i think 21st uh because i got a couple bonuses in there i think it's the 21st uh piece of uh whatever media so i think our, our podcast is legally allowed to drink in uh in all 50 states nice. Woo-hoo! Excellent. excellent 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 all right well gentlemen i will uh i by the way it's you can tweet us at views unbalanced mike somehow refuses to remember that i don't uh, go on twitter I don't know what the Instagram is because that's uh, Twitter. That's the one thing Mike's. That's the one thing Mike does for this podcast is he does Instagram, and I don't know what it is because he's very good at it. 
All right. We're very <laughs> professional here. Thanks for listening. Larry, thank you for joining us. I know it's a long night. You're this welcome. Was long, this was a long one. I, uh, I'm sorry. But see you, you know, guys. I, I hope you come back and join us sometime. All right. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. Yeah. Okay. See ya. Good night. See ya.